Reynolds Planning Design Commission meeting for Thursday, November 30th. Uh, please silence all electronic devices. Um, there's speaker comment cards on the back. Uh, you return to the Commission Secretary if you'd like to comment on any of the items. We'll start with uh, the roll call. Commissioner Bodipo Memba. LaFasso. Here. Coville. Hoffman. Here. Lindsay. Here. Farrell. Here. Pluckybone. Here. Rogers. Here. Juan Connolly. Here. E. Here. Ogilvy. Here. Vice Chair Lucian. Chair Burke. Here. Have a quorum. Fantastic. We'll go to the consent calendar. Item number one, approval of the meeting minutes of November 16th, 2017. So moved. I have a motion from Commissioner LaFosso. Do I hear a second? Second from Commissioner Farrell. Uh, we'll go with a roll call vote. Commissioner Ogilvy. Is this for the meeting minutes? I'm going to abstain from voting. E. Juan Connolly? Aye. Rogers? Aye. Lucky Bomb? Aye. Farrell? Aye. Lindsay? Aye. Hoffman? Aye. LaFosso? Aye. Odipo Memba? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll go to item number two on the consent calendar. It's the approval of the 2018 regular meeting, uh, the regular meeting calendar, um, the commission adoption of that. I have a motion from Commissioner Pluckybaum, a second from Commissioner Kaufman. Um, any objections to the unanimous, well, we didn't have a unanimous roll call, but we'll, we'll go to roll call vote for that one. Commissioner Bodipo member? Aye. LaFosso? Aye. Hoffman? Aye. Lindsay? Farrell? Aye. Plucky Bomb? Aye. Rogers? Aye. Juan Connolly? Aye. E? Aye. Ogilvy? Aye. Chair Burke? Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. We'll go to item number three, the director's report. Director Cosgrove? I don't have anything for you this evening for the director's report. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to item number four, and that's the discussion calendar. Just colleagues, just remember um, item number four and five are just receiving file, um, no quasi-legislative or legislative um, items. Um, Mr. McDonald? Evening, Chair Burke, members of the Commission. My name is Jim McDonald. I'm with the uh, Community Development Department, Long Range Planning. And I'm here this evening to talk about transit oriented development. Um, more specifically, what is transit oriented development? What have we done to plan and implement uh, transit oriented development? And what are some uh, recommendations and thoughts for uh, going forward to improve our planning efforts around uh, light rail? So to begin with, uh, the starter line, uh, which initially went from downtown to Butterfield Station out on Folsom Boulevard and uh, northeast to Watt Avenue, uh, was completed in 1987. 
at a cost of about $220 million. Um, the light rail line was located primarily in a heavy rail corridor because that's where we could get the uh, right-of-way cheapest, the, the, the easiest way to get the line started. Um, but if you think about what's in a heavy rail corridor, a lot of industrial, heavy commercial uses that aren't necessarily transit supportive. Um, to start off, uh, we are planning efforts for transit-oriented development were relatively light. Uh, in the 1988 general plan, there was some mention of it. We were generally supportive of it, but uh, a lot of the land uses and, and zoning designations didn't support transit at that time. Um, we've since expanded the line. Uh, now it goes down to Kasumnas River College to the south. Um, the, um, the gold line now goes out to Folsom, and we have the green line that goes out to Township 9 now for a total investment of uh, somewhere over half a billion dollars. What is TOD? Generally, uh, uh, development uh, near transit, generally a quarter to half mile uh, uh, light rail or, or good bus service that's uh, high density housing, high intensity employment, uh, and support retail and commercial services. Uh, more specifically, we're looking at medium and high density residential near transit, uh, high intensity office, so a, a point F, uh, FAR of 0.4 or greater, uh, uh, supporting retail and commercial uses, restaurants and, and services that uh, residents and employees might use. And also we uh, support the adaptive reuse of, of existing buildings. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily scrape all the buildings near a light rail station. Uh, it might grow over time and we take advantage of existing buildings. <clears throat> uses that don't support transit are auto-oriented uses like drive-throughs, gas stations, uh, um, other uses, low-intensity uses, mini storage, warehousing, uh, those kinds of uses that have uh, low uh, density and intensity uh, and people generally drive to those locations. They wouldn't uh, walk or bike or take transit. So what has the city done to implement uh, development around transit? Well, in uh, 2001, we kind of had a wake-up call. If you see the uh, photo on the right is what we call the barn site at 65th, near 65th and Folsom. Uh, in 2001, there was a proposal for a mini storage on that site. It was zoned uh, heavy commercial, and it was allowed by right. Uh, council quickly uh, directed staff to prepare an emergency ordinance that required a conditional use permit within a half mile of that light rail station to give us time to come up with a, a plan. And so uh, during that time, we developed the 65th Street Transit Village Plan, and I'll go over that in more detail in a minute. But also about the same time, uh, RT uh, partnered with the City of Sacramento to uh, initiate the Transit for Livable Communities effort an effort to, recognizing that the city hadn't done any planning to date uh, around light rail stations. They looked uh, out for their own interest. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the, the property around the light rail stations uh, were zoned properly, uh, that they were marketed, uh, and that they'd studied to make sure that there was a, um, a market for that kind of development. Uh, out of it came some land use recommendations to the city that we eventually adopted. Um, and the city, or, and RT also did did some marketing and outreach, not only to uh, the development community, but also to uh, local citizens to be on board with that, that more urban development 
around light rail stations. You can see the person in the lower right-hand corner. Anybody know who that is? My clicker isn't working, but the uh, lower right-hand corner looking at the computer. That's Mike McKeever, who was a consultant for uh, McKeever Morris at the time, who was uh, the consultant for RT. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, out of that effort came uh, land use recommendations, um, policy recommendations to the city, RT did marketing for their properties. At the, at the time, uh, they were only able to lease their properties, so they were having difficulty making deals work on their property. Uh, I understand now that they're able to now sell their property, and, and so I think we may see more, more changes on RT property. This kind of started a wave of uh, transit station planning, so we adopted a transit village plan at 65th Street. Uh, later, 65th Street South, just south of Highway 50. Uh, we planned for uh, stations uh, at Meadowview and Florin stations. Uh, we did uh, additional planning in the R Street corridor for transit. Um, uh, we adopted a specific plan at Swanston Station to support transit and uh, some other uh, uh, planning efforts along the northeast line off of Del Paso Boulevard. But those, those individual one-off efforts were very expensive and time-consuming. They took a year or two to complete, and oftentimes the costs ranged from $250,000 to $500,000 per station. So it, it wasn't a very cost-effective effort. Uh, but just to give you a sense of what we were looking at, uh, at 65th Street, uh, we looked at different scenarios for land use. And at the time, uh, in the 88 general plan, we thought 36 dwelling units per acre was high density. Uh, uh, this effort with uh, Mike McKeever and using the places model, we started looking at even higher density and minimum FAR, floor area ratios, and we found that if you uh, increased um, uh, employee density, uh, residential density uh, that uh, around transit, that uh, vehicle miles traveled went down, uh, vehicle miles traveled per household and per person, um, that air quality emissions went down, water use went down, energy use went down. So there were a lot of efficiencies associated with the, with the more compact urban development uh, near transit. And, and out of that, we started talking about uh, 60 acres plus per unit. Uh, and, and that was later incorporated in our uh, transit overlay ordinance. So this is an early concept plan for our for 65th Street that was later implemented through a change in land use and zoning. So um, we also adopted a, a transit overlay ordinance that would, uh, this is before we updated our general plan, before we updated our zoning code to allow us to, to build uh, higher density uh, in the uh, C2 zone and then the uh, RMX zone. So we allowed up to 60 units per acre. It's like, wow, that's uh, big time. And we also identified a minimum floor area ratio of 0.4 and uh, a list of uh, uses that were prohibited within a quarter mile of the light rail, or actually within whatever areas were zoned transit overlay, and that overlay could apply up to a half mile away. So there's a misconception that we have transit overlay around every light rail station in our system. We only have it at two, one at 65th Street, uh, the northern transit village, and some properties on the northeast line. That's it. Uh, we have not rezoned. We'd have to formally rezone property and apply the TO suffix. So we haven't done that. Uh, but what we have done, and I'll, actually I'm getting ahead of myself, the, another recommendation from 
the TLC effort was to look at a conditional use permit for certain uses within a quarter mile of light rail stations, um, cleaning plants, auto sales, laundry plants, so on. Those super low intensive uses that don't generate a lot of employees and don't don't support transit. That uh, we didn't prohibit them, but we we wanted to take a look and and you know if they were. Uh, readily accessible to the light rail stations, uh, we might consider uh, denial of these projects. So also out of the TLC recommendations were some land use regulations. So if before the general plan update, if you wanted to do urban development near a transit station, you had to do some uh, general plan amendments and rezones. And uh, like uh, La Valentina, uh, the project on 12th Street, uh, it required uh, 13 planning entitlements, and uh, so we we were trying to get out of our own way, and so we we uh, up designated the, the the land uses not only around transit stations, but in all of our corridors and centers, and so in a sense all boats uh, rose, and and we didn't just focus on uh, light rail stations. Uh, we also um, incorporated our community plans into the general plan, and. And in those were uh, some of the transit village plans, so they got uh, carried forward into the general plan. Another recommendation was that we uh, modify our level of service C standard, which is fairly free-flowing traffic. Uh, and in order to get to that, uh, you have to uh, build a lot of, uh, you have to accommodate automobiles and build more and more lanes of traffic. And, and that was counter to what we were looking at, not only in uh, the transit station planning, but uh, planning as a whole in the city, and uh, so we changed our our LOS standard to D, E, and F in some places, uh, so we weren't requiring urban development to mitigate for uh, uh, traffic convenience. Uh, we also adopted a smart growth uh, development code or our zoning code uh, that, that implemented those uh, urban designations in the general plan. We also updated our uh, parking code. Um, I like the example of the project uh, Trace Hermanas on K Street. If they were to build under the old parking code, they would have to have a two-story parking structure underneath. And so for urban development, like we want to see at the light rail stations, uh, we were having to uh, uh, grant deviations or variances for the parking standard. With the parking code change, we've lowered our parking ask, and, and that's not uh, an issue anymore and it's easier to now deviate from the parking standard rather than get a variance and so we made it easier and we're, we're not requiring kind of suburban parking standards near uh, transit in our corridors and centers so uh, what do we do from this point forward uh, what what can we do to improve our, our TOD planning efforts so in the near term uh, we've had a lot of uh, Mini storage, gas station, drive-throughs that have been uh, proposed and approved uh, within a quarter mile of light rail stations, and we're looking at uh, possibly a prohibition of those uses within a quarter mile of light rail. That's something we're, that we're going to be taking a look at. Um, we also want to uh, identify some guidelines for staff uh, to better uh, review projects that are within a quarter and even a half a mile of light rail stations. Uh, to um, look at things like uh, uh, walking distance and you know access and context of the the area, um, if there are any barriers like freeways or railroads and and so on, uh, and take those into consideration 
uh, about our recommendations to approve or deny uh, those low intensity uses that we talked about earlier uh, near light rail. We also want to work more closely with our partner agencies, the Air District, SACOG, RT, Walk Sacramento, uh, and uh, sharing out information about those proposals. Uh, we also want to partner with them to help develop uh, the criteria for reviewing uh, projects now and also in um, uh, developing uh, policies that we might add to the 2040 general plan, which uh, Remy will be talking about in a minute. So with that, those, that's uh, what we're looking at at the moment. And that concludes my presentation, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Mr. McDonald. We have a couple of commissioners' questions. Uh, Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Chair Burke. Thanks, Jim. That was a useful presentation. A couple of questions. I'll, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but bear with me. Um, is there any meaningful overlap between light rail stations and priority development sites? In priority development priority sites? Priority development sites. Which priority development sites? There are things that you that you've shown us over the over the years when we're talking about uh, capital improvement uh, projects, <laughs> the areas that you oh, are, right, right, right. So that you've our, identified as right. Our light rail stations are all in priority areas. Those are all considered our our centers and corridors are, are part of those uh, areas that we anticipated would be developed in the, the general plan. And uh, are they tier one or tier two? I think some of the uh, more urban locations are tier one and probably the farther out stations are tier two. Okay, but every every single one of them is in a right. priority. Right. Okay. Um, have you have you given any thought or are you planning on addressing this in the in the next general plan update as it relates to TOD? For what happens to the concept of transit oriented development when autonomous vehicles really come into play? And you don't necessarily need fixed rail lines any longer to deliver regional transit services. Mm -hmm. It would look very. It could look very, very different. That's a good question. Uh, you know, we just met with our tra city traffic engineer Ryan Moore and talking about scoping the 2040 general plan, which is initiated in, in the spring of next year. And we're looking at. He's saying throwing out the mobility element and starting over and start thinking uh, along those lines. I, I don't think it's going to happen before the next redo of the general plan, but we certainly want to start thinking about that and getting set up for that. Uh, I'd be surprised. Within five years, are, are you saying that we would have? There, there are cities out of, right now RT is where out of there a job. are non-fixed rail uh, mass transit systems that are handled by autonomous vehicles, essentially trains of autonomous vehicles that move up and down streets and transport large numbers of people Singapore does it. Mm -hmm. um, so but it may that, happen more quickly than you think. That's great feedback, not just for this, but also for the general plan update. That's something to consider for helping us scope that that effort. So that's something we'll look at. It leads me to another question, though, because I, I guess the question is: Is transit-oriented development appropriate everywhere? Appropriate Natomas. Everywhere that we plan a light rail station, city. I would Everywhere argue that it is. Everywhere in the city, where there's some, you know, 
some uh, concentration of activity already. Now we're not going to need a light rail line necessarily to do that. We're just going to need some place, some long road where cars can go back and forth and back and forth. I see. I see. So are there implications of this for a place like Natomas? I don't know. You're thinking ahead of me. I, I... Well, you know, when you think about, we always talk about smart growth. We're always focused on a conversation about what we're doing inside the grid, what we're doing in neighborhoods that are already somewhat dense, trying to, you know, to, to get a little more density out of everything that we do. The one place we don't really do that anymore is up in Natomas. What we have are large shopping malls that might benefit from smart growth that put housing next to commercial, particularly along major um, arterial roads. That could be what the new fixed rail line is for RT in the world of autonomous vehicles. I'm saying it's maybe we need to think about about some of those things alongside that issue. I think maybe what you're saying is uh, we should be tr planning around these stations where we have a half a million dollars of investment, but maybe we also look beyond that and some other areas in addition to that where, I mean, we should always be looking to create walkable, bikeable, transit-friendly areas. Regardless, but we've built these stations, and, and we want to make sure that uh, we're taking care of our investment and, and not underdevelop at those stations. I'm not sure it's a, I'm not sure it's, I, I appreciate that sense of priority and the fact that there's a bunch of sunk cost there. Um, I'm not sure it's an either or kind of No, situation. no, I, I, I agree. I think it's both. But I think to, to start planning around something that, it's not here yet. I mean, we'll, we'll certainly start thinking about that in the general plan, but. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner Kaufman. Commissioner Wong Connolly. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Mr. McDonald, one question I have. Uh, um, is there any discussion to um, allow um, the site uh, close to the uh, transit um, provide public service, essential public service like a medical, like a um, library, a school, and uh, grocery shopping. Because mm -hmm. as the city is promoting all age friendly and, and social equality, I imagine the people that who actually do not drive or do not have a car would uh, really rely on uh, light rail or, or uh, public transit. Mm -hmm. But then uh, I don't see that in the plan, so could you comment on, is that a not a good idea or? It's a great idea. I think it's mentioned when I talked about support services and retail, I think that's assumed to be part of the mix, but certainly schools are part of that. And we could, we could add that if you want that to be part of the description. Okay, because uh, when I read it, I seem, uh, it seemed like uh, we are we want a high impa uh, high density and a mixed use, but uh, it seemed like uh, uh, social services are not in that category of a. Uh, um, yeah, if you think that's a good idea, I, I think we ought to uh, make it clear that's something that we are promoting and pursuing, and there will be opportunity side for people to uh, look at it if they want to operate a medical center somewhere close to the site. I think when those those services are provided, they should be at a in a urban form and not a single story building with lots of parking, right? Uh, so that we have a minimum in some areas a minimum 
floor area ratio. Right, I, I want agree. to make sure that it's, it's an urban uh, development. But if I wasn't clear about that, I, I, I will be in the future. That we certainly support medical and education and those other services. Great, thank you. And then um, I noticed the RT uh, map. Uh, they are uh, where there's a P. That that means that they provide parking, right, for the light rail station. But it seems like a, a big part of the central city that uh, everywhere there's no parking, which um, make it inconvenient. So, is there any study or any um, resource show that uh, how uh, what's the connectivity for people who want to use the uh, the light rail? They can take the bus and get from their home to there easily, or how does that work? You're saying that we don't provide enough parking downtown? No, I'm saying that the uh, the light rail stations uh, in the central city area, none of them has parking. Right. So connectivity with the bus system will be very important for people who actually can use it. So is there any map or any study shown that uh, actually uh, the public transit is well connected through light rail buses or different form of transportation? Yes. Uh, lots of maps. <laughs> I mean, downtown is probably the the best served by uh, transit in of the whole region. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's well served by transit for walking and, and, and biking. Um, but I'm not sure. What, I, I don't have the map there, but we could include that if you'd like. No. Uh, so it's it's your opinion that uh, uh, there are enough. Uh, uh, the con uh, there's enough connectivity from the bus to the light rail uh, to go to different destination. Yes? Okay. And, and that was part of the, the planning effort called Grid 3.0 to, to improve on those connections. And that's going to be incorporated into the Central City Specific Plan. Right. Okay. And um, I remember I took one bus tour for the urban planning, the classes, and then um, RT. Uh, I think it's the RT station in the uh, um, South Sacramento. They have a vast uh, parking lot that no cars. And uh, so um, what do they, uh, it, it seems to me it's a, it's a lost opportunity that they could have the high density use. And is there, uh, you mentioned in your presentation, RT uh, is gradually selling their property before they can only lease, but now they are selling. So is there any coordination between the city and, and RT to, to help them to urban plan, or do they have their own land use uh, resources to plan? Uh, could you please comment on that? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, as part of the Transit for Livable Communities effort, there, was a, a, there were land use plans developed for the transit station areas, including the RT-owned properties. And so we've been working with RT for the last 15 years to help them uh, plan and market those properties. We have a representative from RT here tonight and they might be able to better answer my question, but it was always thought that, you know, the, the outer stations like uh, uh, Florin and Meadowview were the places that uh, people who commute uh, might drive to and use those uh, parking lots, uh, hop on and come in, and eventually the system would move out and those stations would no longer be needed for park and ride because people would park farther out. And so I think now is the time, now that the station's been, or the line has been extended, it's a good opportunity to see those areas redevelop. And to your point, yeah, the parking is pretty low there now. And so they're, they're kind of obsolete parking lots. But I, I would defer to 
the representative from RT to speak to that. Yeah, I'd love to hear uh, from RT about uh, their progress about uh, using those, uh, about um, uh, utilize those underutilized uh, parking lots. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And then, um, so I understood correctly that there are a lot of uh, non-supporting use uh, at a transit zone, oriented zone, uh, that require conditional use permit, mm -hmm. but the city is looking at uh, um, probably make them prohibited. Uh, gradually, is that a some of them would direction? be prohibited? The other guidelines would be to uh, inform staff and the commission about kind of educate you about what to look for uh, in your considerations for whether or not we approve or deny uh, use permits uh, for uh, those low intensity uses. Right. Uh, we so might also uh, revisit the general plan and maybe identify some minimum uh, development standards for uh, properties within a quarter and a half mile of light rail station so right now there's a, a fairly broad range in our general plan designations uh, for example in some of the designations we allow from 0.25 to 4 FAR but maybe at a light rail station you don't want the 0.25 maybe you want a minimum of 0 0.4 0 0.5 and so that's something that we're going to take a look at in the general plan and look at that comprehensively I see when is the uh, timeline that uh, you would uh, educate the staff and the Commission about uh, the, the guidelines for approval of uh, that's right. kicking it off tonight uh, so probably within the next couple of months within a, a couple of months okay that, that we'll come back uh, with some materials for you to review that's really great and my last question is more like a, um, a generally so the light uh, the um, public transit planning um, in general do you uh, move the people to the destination which is already populated or is better to plan ahead to move people uh, to build it to in the middle of nowhere so the it's opportunity site and then the land will be uh, occupied later and mm -hmm. so uh, which which direction well our starter line was built in an urban environment so there was not a lot of green space uh, it might you might call it gray fields, you know, uh, underutilized commercial, heavy commercial warehouse that had some potential for reuse. So it's kind of a, a different kind of open space. Greenfield areas, uh, um, we do have uh, North Natomas. Uh, in 1992, we started plan planning for transit there, but I mean, it's been a while and it hasn't been constructed yet. And I think developers. Uh, lose patience and, and uh, optimism about our ability to bring light rail. But we do have uh, a right-of-way reserved from downtown all the way out to the airport. Right. Uh, so, and then projects come into the commission for you to consider whether or not they're appropriate near light rail. And again, uh, hope to provide some more guidance about how to review those projects in the future. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I yield. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Commissioner LaFossa. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you for the presentation, Mr. McDonald. I resolved, Mr. Chair, to uh, save most of my questions till after public comment, but I just wanted to ask one thing, Mr. McDonald. I didn't follow exactly where you were going with your law dropped out of my head. Vanita, what's the low-income low housing project on uh, East? La Valentina. La Valentina. I'm sorry, I, it was in my on my tongue a second ago. Were you basically trying to say that before these changes, we 
we wouldn't allow a building that massive. We wouldn't allow its density. We wouldn't allow, uh, you know, zero setback to a street. What, what, what really is behind the 13 entitlements you were talking about? We had a suburban development code, one size fits all, and so uh, some people joked that it was illegal to do smart growth development in the city. You had to get all these deviations and variances and whatnot. Now you would just need, uh, you could do staff level site plan and design review for a certain level. Some would go to commission if they were a little bit larger scale. As they start to deviate from the development standards and they kind of go up, but uh, uh, we've made it easier to do the kind of development that we envision in the general plan. Okay, appreciate that. I, uh, one comment, I'm going to sneak in another question. Okay. Just as we go through all these changes, because we've got, we've got about four of these big policy change balls up in the air right now, and given the degree of public comment on some of them, I think it would be really helpful for staff when it discusses these things to distinguish substance rules and process rules. It's one thing to say that you no longer need a variance to, to change the setback. It's another thing to say that the staff planner can sign on it versus going to the Planning and Design Commission. I think it's really valuable to distinguish those two fundamental building blocks of the policy changes. With that, my final question is, so since we have general plan update as the next item, is this all these policy changes you're talking about? Are they wrapped up in a 2040 general plan refresh, or are some of them standalone vehicles? Back to my process comment, what, what are the, what's, the, what's the track that these matters are going on? Um, the, my first bullet point about what, what we're proposing, near-term land use restrictions would probably be within the next three or four months. Same with the, uh, the guidelines and standards for TOD that we would bring forward for you to review. The partner with our agencies, local agencies, we do immediately, but also the uh, kind of the bigger policy changes in the general plan would be initiated in spring of 2018 and be finished by uh, early 2020. So does that mean maybe a package of ordinance changes coming here in about five months that runs a little bit ahead of the general plan? Is that kind of Small package, saying? yes. Small, Small package. change, yeah. Okay. I won't Not a bundle. about what small or big means, but thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFosso. Commissioner Lindsay? Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you for your presentation, Ms. McDonald. Um, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about Natomas and more specifically North Natomas. Mm -hmm. So as you know, the community plan called for an integrated community, mm -hmm. interdependent on transportation and light rail. And, we, and as you mentioned, we do have those corridors set aside for light rail. And, and we do have some um, projects that were already approved specifically for a transit-oriented development, um, like the Commerce, Commerce Station, mm -hmm. which is east of I-5. And it's a mixed-use. Mixed mm -hmm high-density, commercial, retail. And then we just brought online Greenbrier, which again is transit-oriented with the light rail station uh, in, in its plan embedded. So, so I'm trying to wrap my mind around how we look at proposals coming into North Natomas for development and 
proposed light rail, which I don't know how many years out. Um, when I moved out there, they said it would be there in 2008. So I don't know what the projected date is yet. So, you know, when, when you're looking at planning for light rail stations and development, how do we incorporate that into waiting for transit to come? <laughs> well, we haven't given up on light rail to the airport. Yeah. It's still, still a priority. And I, I would let uh, RT staff speak to the timing and the funding of that. Yeah. Uh, but certainly something we want to take another look at. Again, I don't want, mean to kick the can down the road, but as part of the general plan update to look at, at uh, how we plan around future light rail stations in the Tomas. And, and also I know RT is looking at some modifications to the alignment to take advantage of the old arena site and maybe go through it rather than around it. Uh, so that's something that we'll be mm -hmm. uh, looking at concurrent with the general plan update. But, uh, but when we're getting these small piecemeal, you know, uh, in, they're more like infill now in, in some of the areas, um, how do we, or maybe it, it should be more specific in, in what the staff reports, how it would relate to transit-oriented development even though it's not there yet. <laughs> I mean, it, it's harder to go back and fix everything um, if, if we are really planning for. It's like the conversation about uh, climate change and what if we planned about, planned for communities that were walkable, bikeable, transit friendly, and the climate didn't change? Well, we'd, we'd be we'd have walkable, bikeable, transit-friendly development. Anyway. So I don't think we should look at it as a negative that we're planning for something that's a burden unless we had light rail. Um, but uh, yeah, we do need to be realistic about is it coming or not and, and when might it be. But with or without um, light rail, I mean, the community was, was based upon integrating bicycles and pedestrian and 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 some type of transportation and so we need to keep that co sort of that cohesive plan going forward and I know the original roadway network was conducive to bus transit as well to yeah. and we don't have that either those connections yeah so. so the circulation pattern has changed over time and yeah. um, it's, a, it's a good point and that's you know that was raised we went to uh, a meeting in North Natomas recently to talk about the 2040 general plan, and there were yes. you know, kind of hints at that about those future development questions, and that's what we hope to go back to the community and talk about. Uh, how, do, how do we want to plan around those stations? If it's going to be another 20 or 30 years, right? So it's a good point. in mind as we you know we're, we're getting more and more little infill projects and how they relate to the overall plan of transit and thank you thank you Commissioner Lindsay Commissioner Ogilvie thank you I just have um, one question you mentioned there's only two transit overlay districts mm -hmm. um, are you gonna add more and if so where or have those been identified? Like I mentioned, with the uh, at the time we needed the transit overlay to it was kind of a patch to 
to our zoning code to allow urban development, to allow 60 units per acre, to allow reduced parking, to allow mixed use was not allowed in uh, the C2 zone at the time, but it was if you had a transit overlay zone. Now you can have mixed use anywhere in the city in the C2 zone. Now we allow in the C2 zone whatever the general plan density allows. And so we've kind of surpassed what was allowed in the TO zone. So I think it's kind of dated except for the, uh, the list of prohibited uses. Uh, and maybe that's something we, we look at comprehensively rather than have to apply it. I mean, it's, it's a big process to rezone properties. And uh, you'll see as part of the central city specific plan, and we've kind of seen that already in some of the community meetings, you rezone somebody's property, even if it's to add a suffix that you're in a, a special planning district, and people get really concerned. And so to, to go rezone every property within a quarter mile of every light rail station, uh, I don't know if that's the, the approach. I think we ought to do it just citywide in the code by definition rather than going out rezoning. Uh, so I, I don't think we have any plans to apply the TO zone anymore. It's certainly good where it is applied right now. At 65th Street, like I mentioned, there's a minimum 0.4 FAR regardless of lot size. Um, it's 0.4. And so you can see it's kind of bearing fruit now. Uh, people wanted to, there were proposals for um, drug stores for uh, uh, an in-and-out burger and things like that. And we held firm and said, no, we want more urban development. And now you see it growing out of the ground. So um, I, I think that, that minimum FAR has paid off. And I think it's something we want to look at on a broader scale. Thank you, Commissioner Ogilvie. Um, any more commissioner questions, comments? I have a couple, Mr. McDonald. I have a couple questions. Um, you know, we talked about TODs, some who want to promote smart growth. Is there any incentives for developers who want to do a TOD project? Density bonus, expedited permitting, kind of reduced fees. Um, what's, the, what's the carrot? You know, zoning is a stick, but what's the carrot uh, for TOD production? Like I said, with the zoning code, uh, before, uh, there were some incentives for allowing a certain amount of office or, or housing and whatnot. And now with the, the new zoning code, we kind of gave those carrots to everybody. Uh, I think there's still a couple of carrots about uh, housing within a quarter mile of transit in the industrial zone. Um, I, I don't think there are any other development incentives. I mean, we, we're pretty permissive now. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we have to offer, our regulatory incentives. We don't have any finances to offer. And, uh, but if you, if you have any that you could suggest, we'd be happy to. Expedited permitting, um, when they go to the planning department, that goes to the front of the line, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, maybe reduce development fees, um, density bonus. But you, you so uh, we recently adopted the uh, citywide development impact fee uh, there was a fee for uh, parks and transportation in areas that are near transit. Uh, they get a, a fee reduction. So, so there is kind of a financial incentive there for what they don't have to pay. Fantastic. Um, but we'll we'll look also at the kind of a processing time for projects near transit. Maybe maybe offer um, assistance from a a project manager. In the office to help facilitate uh, uh, development 
right now, if you have a project that's a million dollars or more in value, then you, you get somebody assigned to help you through the process. And maybe any project within a quarter mile of a light rail station would also get that assistance. That could be. My second question is, uh, you talk about La Valentina and other kind of mixed-use TODs, but it seems like the ground floor retail is always tricky. You know, you only could put so many Chipotle's. You only could put so many Starbucks. And, you know, you drive around and you see a lot of, not just TODs, but just mixed-use in general, you see a lot of ground floor retail pretty much vacant, to be honest. There's a CBRE or whatever for lease sign for a uh, long time. Yeah. And... You know, residential at top, retail at bottom. Is there any talk of maybe making, demising some of that space, ground for housing or studio or some innovative use that, maybe something that's in an interim that won't just be vacant? I, and it's not just to Sacramento. I think every city is kind of kind of trying to deal with that as well. No, that's a good point. Uh, I think... I don't want to call it a fad, but we said mixed use for everything before. And notice I didn't say the words mixed use. It was written up there. But I was trying to be mindful not to say that because of that point, that uh, there's, <laughs> we don't need a lot more retail. Uh, we have a lot of retail in the city of Sacramento. We need a little bit of support retail at these locations. So if they have it or don't, I, you know, if, if it was projects were only employment or housing, We'd be okay with that. We're not requiring mixed use. Um, it'd be nice if the market drove that, and if they want to provide it, and there's a market for it to, to be at the ground floor, that's great. But, yeah, I don't think we want to require that everybody has ground floor retail because, to your point, there's a lot of vacant new space that hasn't been occupied, even around light rail stations. Um, in our presentation tonight, we talked about primarily RT, light rail and bus, um, I'm assuming paratransit, you know, I know this Tuesday the, the council supported, you know, a, a massive corporate kind of relocation of a headquarters here. Are you talking maybe corporate commuter shuttles as a, a drop-off location there be a TOD or ride-sharing location or meet-up location be a TOD? I know we bus and light rail, but is there any other transportation options that could be a TOD? I guess, thing as well, or, or so we're just limited to bus and transit? Um, <laughs> might really that's guess. a good question. That's, that's kind of a bigger question. I think uh, tonight I was really focusing on, on the light rail stations, but, again, in my conversations with Ryan Moore, uh, we need to start thinking about those other uh, connections, and it's not just light rail. And to your point, we need to make sure that there's a, a system is light rail doesn't go every place, and to be able to walk, bike to those, or, or take transit uh, to those light rail station areas and, and make those connections. So we need to think beyond just RT buses and, and RT light rail, private jitneys, small, small buses, uh, Uber, Lyft, eventually autonomous vehicles. I think they're all going to be connected. Yeah, as, we as we develop the riverfront, I mean... I mean, ferry service could be a TOD if we develop the ferry, the, the riverfront with enough, you know, density. Uh, ferry dock could, in essence, also do that for, for the river. Yeah. 
So, so Public Works is going to be coming soon in the next couple months to talk about the change from LOS to VMT. And I think that's a, that's a good point to bring up also is, is kind of a different look at, at uh, traffic since we're not going to be mitigating for uh, traffic anymore and building wider and wider roads. How are we going to take care of traffic if people are still coming and the city is still growing? And I think it's going to be in those other ways you're talking about, kind of a, a palette of measures. And that, that's something, that's, that's the new approach, I think, in the mobility element is to look beyond the automobile and, and beyond light rail and buses, but to look at a more comprehensive system. I don't know what that is yet, but that's... Jet oh, packs. we need to look there. <laughs> Jetpacks, flying yeah. jetpacks one day. Uh, my last question is, uh, you mentioned quarter mile. Is there any talk to maybe expand that to a half mile or...? We look at both. I think uh, quarter mile is the more sensitive area uh, because it's so, so close to the stations, but uh, there are a lot of different um, definitions for transit-oriented development that look uh, out to half a mile. Our transit overlay ordinance that goes up to half a mile. Um, transit priority areas as identified by SACOG go up to half a mile. Uh, the state definition for transit village applies out to a half mile uh, from uh, transit station. So um, I think a quarter mile was kind of the old standard and I think we're kind of growing out and uh, maybe not be so restrictive out to half mile, but we certainly want to look and be mindful of the type of development that's happening that far away. And 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 kind of to your point that uh, uh, there are other systems to, to kind of extend the range of light rail, uh, Uber, Lyft, buses, whatever, to, to get to those light rail stations. So you might see more urban development taking advantage of light rail a little farther out than a quarter mile. Fantastic. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for the presentation. I have a question from Commissioner Bodipa Member. Thank you, Chair Burke. Uh, I want to echo uh, the questions and, and comments from uh, Commissioner Kaufman, Commissioner Wong Conley, and uh, Commissioner Burke. Um, in light of the questions that were brought up regarding the different types of modes of travel, uh, will there be any opportunity to look at that definition and update that to reflect, um, I guess, what, what TODs mean for the city of Sacramento? Yeah, I think uh, we need to. I, it, it's embarrassing. I went and looked at the general plan definition. It's, it's awkward, kind of dated from the 90s definition, and it, it needs to be refreshed. And so I think we do need to revisit that and look at uh, look beyond just light rail as, as, as it, but all these other systems. Right, and just, I guess the other thing I would add is look beyond public because I, I think the private transportation options may also um, fall in that TOD mode. Um, Sacramento Station, I noticed, was not, the Sacramento Valley Station project was not listed in the transit villages uh, right. in the PowerPoint, but it would still constitute as a, a TOD project or, or not? It was certainly an area where we want to see transit-oriented development. Uh, it hasn't been formally designated as a village yet. Uh, um, it's interesting, we, we stopped, for whatever reason, probably about 10 years ago, eight years ago, stopped talking about villages, but, uh, and so, I, yeah, I didn't think of 
that area as being kind of a village and was it planned around the station, but I want to rethink that. Is there still an opportunity to to, to reevaluate and, and, and redefine that? It, as I know we got a chance to take a look at the preliminary discussions related to Sacramento Valley Station. Is there is there still an opportunity to yeah, talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's a good point. And I, I will also talk to uh, Greg Taylor, the project manager for that side of this meeting. Right. And then I guess my last question, um, and I can't remember one of the other commissioners references before, um, we talk a lot about the uh, the restrictions as it relates to non-TOD supporting uses. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess, is, is there a way to highlight the potential incentives uh, uh, associated with, with, with certain types of uses that would support TOD development in light of the conversation we're having about the, I guess, the alternative TODs, the non-rail types of uh, development. So, for example, what I'm thinking about are the opportunities to create uh, intermodal hubs, uh, drop-off areas, and for, for those other modes of transportation. So is there a means for us to have that conversation besides just supporting uses, but also supporting uh, land use development uh, designs that would would allow for that type of TOD to exist? Yeah, and that's that's kind of tied to Commissioner Conley's comment about, right. uh, yeah, I was focusing on employment and housing and support services, but yeah, there, there, there are other things. So I think that's going to be part of our modern definition of a, a TOD that we'll certainly yeah. add. And I, I apologize for not representing you, Commissioner Juan Conley. So I definitely echo her question. <coughs> that's all I have, uh, Chair Burke. Thank you, Commissioner Wadipa member. Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Chair Burke. I'll be quick. I just want to go back to this issue about incentives for development around uh, RT uh, stations and lines. Uh, I know that there are restrictions on using gas tax revenue for things that aren't directly transportation purposes. I don't know what the restrictions are on other monies, uh, sales tax increases specifically for transportation or cap-and-trade money, other money that RT gets, other money that SACOG gets. But I think it's time to start having a conversation about thinking more broadly about what's a transportation infrastructure investment. And I think that housing around train stations to make good on the initial investment would be a smart use of money and meaningful, meaningful incentives for developers in a small area. Yeah, that's a good point, and I, I think what kind of the workaround in the past has been to uh, get money to build infrastructure to support the housing. So to build a, an alley, Central City, for example, is really expensive because it has to be done in concrete, right? Or uh, uh, roadways that that serve uh, a housing or mixed-use development. We might be able to get funding for those those things. But I take your point. Uh, it costs a lot of money just to build the housing aside from that infrastructure that I think it would be a great investment also. Thank you, Commissioner Kaufman. Um, seeing no further commissioner questions or comments, we'll go to public comment. And we have a public comment card from uh, Mr. Blair Will from item number four. 
Good evening, Commissioners. I'm Blair Will. I'm with uh, Pioneer Law Group, a land use law firm here in Sacramento. And my comments tonight, I'll keep them brief, are on behalf of my client, Golden Earth Partners. Um, I had my assistant email all of you a letter on this project earlier today, so I hope you had a chance to look at that. If not, I hope you'll take a few minutes to do so. My client has a um, cultivation project for Kathleen Avenue, 1636 Kathleen Avenue in North Sacramento. And my comments um, specifically are with regard to the TOD implications for that project. Um, the project has to get a conditional use permit because of the separate special use regulations in the code which relate to marijuana um, businesses in particular cultivation. So the, my, my client as a project applicant is going to go through the conditional use process and actually has one pending right now. Um, my concern and my client's concern here is the uh, I'm looking at some of the slides that Mr. McDonald put up for us earlier this evening the the issue of existing uses um, in terms of when there is a, an effort to maybe put into uh, place some of the more nearer term land use restrictions um, hopefully there will be an acknowledgement by the Commission that there are some existing uses there and some of those are in fact low intensity uses um, so that would be my, my first point. My second point is on the on the subject of those low intensity uses. There are certain areas, and I think in fairness to Mr. McDonald, he referenced these. There are certain places where the density is appropriate, the high density uses that are being sought in some of these land use um, requirements. But in other places, maybe not so much. In other places, the character of the neighborhood is one where the low intensity uses are pre-existing and continue to to work and to be relevant and appropriate. So I would hope that the, as we move forward into this discussion about the uh, nearer-term land use restrictions, we would keep in mind that that appropriateness may vary. And I think everybody recognizes that, but just to amplify that point. And finally, on the point that some of the commissioners raised most recently here in this discussion, I think that the issue of uh, incentivizing increased intensity in, in, in developments that are near to light rail stations is important rather than focusing specifically here on the restrictions that we can place on projects that want to or for whatever reason end up locating within a half mile of a train station, specifically give people incentives to change those uses and to reuse those low intensity uses for a higher density use. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Mr. Will. Uh, we have another comment card from James Boyle. Good evening, Mr. Chairman, Burke, and members of the Commission. My name is James Boyle. I'm the Director of Planning with Sacramento Regional Transit. And I'm here tonight um, to speak on behalf of the agency um, in support of what the city is um, doing in terms of taking a fresh look, I would say, at TODs and bringing this issue back to the forefront. It's also something that we've been talking about internally at SACRT as well. I've been in Sacramento for about five months now, and one of the first things I noticed when I came here was how extensive the light rail system is. It, we have a tremendous opportunity, I think, in the city to really focus in on some of those stations and create great TOD developments, and with that comes ridership. For transit to be successful, we need to have the land uses and the zoning in place around our light rail stations to support uh, transit use. I mean, that's 
it's really important and it's something that you know we're beginning to pay a little bit more attention to you know in terms of when we have uh, projects to come through RT for review um, the city we try to coordinate with the city in terms of our comments and you've probably have heard some of our comments uh, more recently about some projects that we feel are not really supportive of transit so I'm just here to say that we are looking forward to working with the city uh, we currently uh, do work with the city, but we're uh, embarking on these new initiatives. We've applied for a Caltrans Sustainable Communities Grant to help fund some of our TOD strategic initiatives. And this will be an effort to bring uh, RT, the city of Sacramento, SACOG, everyone together to sort of get on the same page with TODs. It is not easy to implement TOD. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do. You have to have the transit agencies, the cities, the counties, developers, everyone has to be on board to make TOD successful. And so from the transit perspective and from what we do in planning at RT, I'm here to tell you that um, we are very supportive. Um, and I have several good planners over there who uh, are really paying close attention to this and we're gonna do everything we can to work with the city uh, and to continue to advocate and advance uh, TOD in Sacramento. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Boyle, um, we have a question from Commissioner Kaufman, Commissioner from Commissioner Wong Conley, and I have a question as well. Okay. Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Chair Board. Mr. Boyle, thanks for coming tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank we you have for had some me. frustrations over the past several months in dealing with issues on projects that were proximate to light rail stations. In some cases, we saw RT comment, in some cases, we didn't see it, and we didn't understand the logic of some of the comments that were made. Mm -hmm. Are you telling me that? somebody that either you or some representative from RT will physically be here to be able to talk about projects all the projects that are that are considered <laughs> here at the Commission level that relate to uh, proximity to RT stations either I will be here it'll probably more than likely be me if there's a project that comes up that we have concerns about um, I will definitely be here so you'll probably see me more often <laughs> Yeah, I think but we'd yes. like to hear on both sides of it, things that are not just problems, but things that are desirable and where oh, yeah. there's something that's missing, what could be done to make it workable? Exactly. Sure. Definitely. Great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. No problem. Thank you, Commissioner Kaufman. Commissioner Wong Conley. Uh, thank you, Chair uh, Burke. I echo what Commissioner Kaufman said. Your perspective here to comment on the project and answer questions will be really appreciated for the projects that uh, uh, related to TOD. And then, um, so would you please comment on uh, the underutilized uh, parking lots? What's the plan? Uh, That's a really good question. Um, and you're right. I mean, me being new to Sacramento and sort of seeing things from an outside perspective, one of the first things I noticed a lot was our huge park and ride lots that are heavily underutilized. Um, and I think this effort of going back and looking at TOD and talking about specific stations and station design and overlays will help us with those particular stations in identifying, you know, what types of developments are appropriate for that type of an area and what to do with the land that's available. Um, so it's, it's not a quick fix, you know, I mean, those stations are there, the, those parking lots are there. and. You know, I understand fully that we need to do something with them and leverage that land that we have to uh, intensify and, in, and cr increase development around those stations. 
So we'll be working with the city and with SACOG and all of our other partners and, and really trying to come up with plans for these stations. Uh, in my previous job when I was in Florida, we did a lot of TOD planning and we had station area master plans for just about every station that we had on our system. Um, so, but it's a process, it's a long process you have to go through. And I know there's been a lot of work done here in the past and I think we can leverage some of that work but also begin to take a look at some of these stations where we have heavily underutilized parking and there's, there's things we can do there. It's just getting the plan together and getting to that point. Great. And, um... So you have been here for a couple of months and look like you uh, you made quite a few observations. So uh, could you give us uh, some highlights about things you see that uh, RT in Sacramento that uh, uh, need to be improved or things on your priority list as the director of planning? So I've been here for five months. Um, and to be honest with you, I was excited about coming to Sacramento because I knew, you know, just from being in the planning industry that you had a really large, extensive light rail system. And I was excited about that. When I got to Sacramento and started exploring, I was like, wow, there's a lot of underutilized stations. And to me, I think that was the biggest thing I noticed was I don't think we utilize the light rail system to the maximum capabilities that we can. So part of, you know, what I'm thinking and, and what I would like to do is, I mean, we have to look at the light rail system as the spine of our transit system. It is the backbone of our system. And um, we're going to be embarking on a route optimization study here starting off in January, and basically it's going to be looking at the entire bus route system for RT and how we can basically start from scratch. I mean, we're going to be doing a blank slate approach on the bus system and looking at, you know, how commuting patterns have changed and living and where folks live have changed and how we can better realign our bus routes to connect to our light rail system. So all those things sort of play together. But the route optimization, I think, will help us understand um, those relationships better. And I think it'll be best for Sacramento once we get to a point where, you know, we can implement that. But, again, I, I think that there's a lot of underutilized stations and land around our light rail system that I think we could do a better job with. That's really my biggest observation. I applaud your effort. And... Uh... I really believe that the the, pub, uh, the land use decision and then the public transit is really hand in hand. So, uh, when you're done with your study, is that proper to uh, bring a, a presentation to the commission to let us know what uh, what's the plan to sure. related to the Sacramento? And I'll probably be here even before we're done with the study because it's going to have a very large public outreach component as we move through that process. So I'll probably actually be here doing a presentation on that as well. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. And last question, I want to ask a follow-up with uh, Commissioner Lancet question. Would you give us a timeline on the uh, the line to the airport that we all want to know? Is it a, in the drawing board or how far out are you thinking? Well, what I can tell you is it's still in the plans. Like, RTE still wants to move forward with that light rail extension to the airport, but, you know, it's it comes down to funding and money. And, and the environmental work is almost done or pretty much completed on that extension. So the process has been moving forward. It's just been very slow. And then, of course, with limited funding, it's really hard to make that investment. But, you know, if things change in the future and, and funding becomes available, that's one of the top priorities uh, for RT in terms of light rail is to, 
build that green line. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Wong Conley. Commissioner LaFosse. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you very much for being here. I uh, have a very specific mercenary question that I can't help myself from asking, but it does speak to the bigger issue. It's about the green line. But I'll broaden it for a second, just apropos to the last question. Perhaps next time you come, you can let us know if the real funding gap uh, for the green line to the airport is the bridge over the river. I think that's the glitch, and perhaps you could clarify that. But my green line question, um, given the fact that the green line ends at Township 9 now, um, it's pretty much a line from Township 9 to downtown. Um, I asked this question as a frequent Central City RT writer. I wonder if you guys have thought about extending the southern terminus of the green line from the 13th Street Station to the 29th Street Station, because that would make the green line an added service it would double the frequency of service with the Green Line in the Central City, and given the fact that a Central City RT user pays the same as a RT user who goes all the way out to Folsom, um, it might do something to stimulate your your Central City ridership. Anyway, I'm wondering if you've thought of uh, extending the terminus of the Green Line about three stations. Great question, and to be honest with you, that's one of the first things I asked when I got here: is why don't why don't we run the Green Line instead of stopping at 13th? at least go up to 16th, because that's where the blue and gold you transfer, so why not have the green? It's kind of hard to get into the details of it without schematics, but it has to do with the trackage and the layout of the trackage and the siding and the passing and the crossovers and the signal system. It gets a little complicated, to be honest with you, but it really has to do with the track infrastructure at this point and where cars are stored, because these store cars are at 13th Street, I could go into a lot of detail. But no, no, to be honest with you, the question was, have you considered? The answer unquestionably is yes, and yes, you told me it, that there's a, there's a technical issue. So that's a, that's a responsive answer. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFazzo. Uh, Commissioner Colville. Thank you, Chair Burke. Number one, welcome to Sacramento. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just, a, just an observation comment um, based on your comment of seeing un underutilized land around the stations I think one of it was when we when we did all this we only had limited funds and we ran our light rail along railroad tracks right. and nobody wanted to build housing shopping centers all these great things around railroad tracks so, but we put our transit system along the railroad tracks for example we've got this big Arden Fair mall and light rail goes on the other side of the freeway of it with no access. Yeah. Those are examples of huge hurdles that we're going to have to come through. So I, I think that's uh, why we're, we have so much underutilized, and it seems like it's not in the right spot. But uh, um, as far as downtown is concerned, I'm, I'm uh, having sit on, on this uh, commission for a while and get to see how we did change all that because it was – it was almost impossible to build anything down here because of um, suburban-style requirements that don't make sense down here. So we've come a long way to make incentives for builders. I'm, I'm open to more incentives, but uh, I think there's more builders wanting to come down here now because we have made it the incentive to take away all those uh, burdens that we had. So I appreciate what you've done so far and look forward to you being at our meetings. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Colville. Uh, Mr. Boyle, I have a couple of questions. Sure. Um, I know BART has a TOD program and staff. Yeah. LA Metro has a robust TOD real estate group. Mm -hmm. Is that is that just you? Is there a department at RT that does it? Uh, but we don't have a BART-sized department, that's for sure. But, um, well, we, we do have a planning department. So there's myself, the director, and then I have a principal planner, I have a senior strategic planner, and I have an assistant planner. There was a time several years ago when RT had a much bigger real estate department um, where they actively engaged with TOD and joint use development, and that was trimmed back over the years. But on a positive note, we actually just hired this week a new uh, director of real estate. So I'm very, I've already started having conversations with him about TODs and, and private development. And so I'm actually looking forward to working with him and starting to get you know, him more involved in TOD. So we, we don't have a BART or an LA Metro type thing going on at RT, but we have good staff and we do the best we can. You know with what we have and but we'll get there is there any um you know we talked about the city of sacramento providing incentives is there any incentives rt provides you know ground lease for facilities that you guys might own maybe transferring real property to a developer for affordable housing is there any type of things like that you guys i honestly can't speak specifically to what sort of incentives we may offer i mean just speaking you know from what i know the thing RT has in its favor is the land. I mean, RT owns or you know most of the land around these light rail stations and the parking lots. So that's the one big piece of leverage that RT has in terms of working with developers or the, or the private sector in the city to encourage uh, development around these stations. So whether it be through a sale of land to a, a private entity or doing a joint use development with the developer and working with the city, those are really the things RT has in its toolbox. And of course, providing that quality transit service. I mean, you know, transit, TOD, you gotta have the quality transit service to, to really make it all work, so. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the land because that goes to my next two questions. RT isn't exempt from local zoning like school districts or the state government or the federal government is. You guys would have to, even if you're developing on your own land, will have to come to the city for land use approvals, correct? Oh, yes. Yep. Um, I think even if we want to put up some sort of a special shelter, we have to, I think, get approval from the city for those sorts of things. So, yeah. And do you guys have eminent domain for non-transportation functions? You talked about the ability to, you have land, but you might want to assemble other parcels and mm -hmm. other things. Can you use eminent domain for non-transportation? I honestly don't know the answer to that question, but... I can I can find out and let you know. I, I just I don't know about the eminent domain question, so I'd rather not answer it and answer it incorrectly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for for being here. Uh, welcome to Sacramento. Thank you. I'm glad you heard about the light rail station. I'm glad your group is here. Um, surprising to hear that we have one of the best planning commissions in California, but uh, <laughs> we look forward to you joining in the meetings. No, I'm glad to be here and I appreciate the time. Thank, Thank you. you. With that, seeing no further commissioner comments, oh, Commissioner Fossil. No, I, I said I was going to, I'm waiting for you to close the public comment so I can tee up. Okay, fantastic. No, no, no public comment. Um, 
I'm actually moving to item five. Did you want no, to no, I, oh. as I said, I was going to wait until after public comment to do my thing. Oh, there's no, there's no public comment anymore. No, we, that's, that's, that's why I teed up, and I'm sorry. I, I, I was waiting for the magic words, public comment is closed. Public comment is closed. Thank you. <laughs> Commissioner comments, no motions. So I've got about four things I wanted to ask about um, or comment about. Um, uh, Mr. McDonald, th there are a couple questions, and the most one on point to my question previously was Commissioner Ogilvie's question that you answered about the transit overlay zones and kind mm. of said that as a, as a regulatory device, it's a little bit obsolete. I'm getting from your commentary that the packaging of it is not entirely foreign. I mean, I'll be candid with you. You know, I've done policy for quite a number of years, and when I'm thinking about the philosophy and the economics up here, I'm thinking about the words and where they go in the code way down there. And so my question is about the packaging. Um, is, it, is it your envision, is it your vision at this juncture, generally speaking, to not, again, rezone, but say there are rules that within proximities of light rail stations, there are additional entitlement rules such that individuals need to know if they're going to learn what the rules are for the parcel they either own or the parcel they're concerned about. Not only do they need to look at the zoning map, they need to look at the general plan and then need to learn what these rules are and then apply distance measurements to light rail stations. Is that sort of, in essence, the packaging? Exactly. It's by definition rather than by rezoning the property. It's, it's built into the a development standard in the code. Okay. Um, my comment is, and I, 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 I thought your comment earlier about the issues about rezoning and the analogy to the central city specific plan was apropos. I, I do think that you've got some group of people who are resistant to change under any guise and other people who are resistant to change because they don't understand how it's packaged. And that's why I made my earlier comment about. I mean, I think it's really important to communicate. It's, it's an issue for, for, for the general public, a.k.a. neighbors, as it is for investors. But how it's packaged, you know, determines how it's consumed. Mm -hmm. um, I am curious, um, given the fact that sometimes in the packaging there's a value to having, you know, colors on a map or words on a map, um, are, are, have, you, have you thought of having the packaging include designating uh, areas in the general plan that in some way delineate that they are, they have these transit associated rules governing them such that there's some kind of visual that signals to both an investor or a general public or anybody else, you know, hey, take a look at this. This is, uh, this is um, you know, this is, this, is, this is something to be aware of. Um, I'd like to do that. I mean, it's kind of a, how we used to do uh, uh, policy and ordinance work, and we kind of got away from that. And like I mentioned, kind of all boats rising. But I think if we're going to have some special rules for transit-oriented development, we might want to call it out in that way. And we do, in some regard, for the incentives, for example, uh, transit priority areas are identified in a map in the zoning code, but we might want to also say, and also in these areas, there are some incentives and some restrictions, right? To call that out up front. Okay. Just just as a technical question, um, I understand if they uh, change the zoning, the city wants to change the zoning of the parcel that I live on from R1B to R1B hyphen SPD. The city has to send me a notice and they have to pass an ordinance. 
if the city wants to um, if the city wants to change the the general plan land use state designation of where I live from I think it's traditional neighborhood medium to let's just say for the sake of discussion urban corridor low mm -hmm. does it also have to make does it also have to notice me in the same way or does that process function a little differently the process changes if there are uh, fewer or greater than a thousand parcels affected so if you're doing a citywide general plan fix then we wouldn't notify every individual property owner but if it's a if you're doing a general plan amendment in a small area, we would notify all the property owners. Okay. So we would do uh, different types of outreach. Uh, we might have more community outreach uh, out at uh, neighborhood organizations, planning commission, and whatnot. And um, it's always a challenge, though. Uh, always somebody comes in and says, I didn't know this was happening. But at the same time, is it realistic to, to send you know, 90,000 notices to for every meeting no I, I I know that and again that's why I asked I, I again I in my own mind distinguish between nice things we do because we think we should do them like community meetings mm -hmm. and things we have to do notices in my mailbox yeah. by the way I didn't get the letter on the central city specific plan but that's another issue for another day but so as a practical matter if you did something in the general plan where you were changing something about the land use designations for more than a thousand parcels which i assume in a 2040 refresh that's likely to occur you could follow whatever ordinance changes you do in 2017 with some visual representation that makes it easier to understand for a visually oriented person in 2019. Right. okay again i don't know if this is novel or crazy or routine but appreciate the comments um one question that Commissioner Bodip, a member. So, what's a transit village? It sounds like what's gentrification. It's like it's eye of beholder and it's amorphous term. And what's a transit the village? Old uh, designation created by the state, probably in the early 2000s. To if you were uh, if you met certain criteria, um, that you adopted a plan, you did some environmental review, and then I forget what the, what the different benchmarks you had to meet you could call yourself a transit village and then receive some uh, funding incentives from the state for uh, any funding incentives that yeah. you were eligible to apply for a grant for right exactly. or funding incentives that you got a running stream of gas tax money or something for, for uh, grant applications okay. from the state. one more plan if you do a cool plan maybe you can apply for money in the future but maybe you won't get it right okay you you might get you know 10 points Okay. You, but okay. I haven't seen those points being offered in the last 10 years, though. I think okay. it's, that's kind of on a way. No, I appreciate this. But again, you know, one of my issues, I mean, again, I'm interested in the packaging and the, and the mechanics, but again, there's a lot of lore and urban legend amongst the public. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> let's face it, there are a lot of people in the city who dropped out of going to community meetings 10 or so years ago, and their mindset is still circa 2005. And Again, it, it, it clutters the public debate because people still are, but some of us came in a little later and all these terms, I don't even know what they mean, and then we got a meeting and you get 20 minutes of questions like is happening right now, and then, you know, the bottom line answer is it's archaic. Got it. Appreciate that. Um, could you indulge me and bring up the slide in your presentation, the one that showed those big green arrows? the big green arrow along 65th Street, both north and right here. Um, 
Yeah, so that, is, is that an old slide? When was that slide produced? It's about 2001, 2002. That's what I thought. My question is, given that it's 2017, what do you, what do you think about that, that slide in terms of what happened? And the real focus I'm interested in is there's all these beautiful green arrows that um, I think kind of depict places for people to walk, implying that, you know, it's not, it's not the Tahoe Park people walking up to the 65th Street Station north of 50. It's actually all those people who live in East Stack and like the 50s, you know, the, the high 50s mm -hmm. between, uh, uh, you know, just south of, of Folsom and between Folsom and J Street, all walking down to the 65th Street. And I don't even know how far that is. It's, I know it's more than a quarter mile. But it seems to me that somebody in 2001 thought that all these people are going to walk down the, the, the lanes of all these cool green lines and walk to 65th Street Station. Am I misunderstanding this? And was that the vision? Did it happen? Do we have any lessons learned? Well, your first question, what I think of this, I think it's awesome. You know, I, and I wish my pointer was working because the uh, southeast corner of the interse intersection of 65th and Folsom was designated as a, a mixed-use site. Yeah. It is now. There's student housing and then the uh, those coyotes with the housing above. Um, so that that's played out. Uh, more mixed-use in the upper right-hand uh, quadrant. Uh, there's student housing constructed already and more uh, planned on the way. Yeah. The lower right-hand quadrant was also a kind of a, a town center. There's a big property there, and it's it's kind of hard to uh, hard to market. Uh, but I, I think I think that's going to turn over soon. And the barn site uh, has has played out. I mean, uh, no, I, you're I, starting I, to see the land yeah. use uh, take off. There's a big blue line that connects uh, between 65th and Folsom and Sac State. Since this was prepared, they did a punch through, and there's a tunnel that that connects to Sac State. No, I, I'm aware of all those things. In fact, I'm going to take a cheap shot right now. And that when we had a when we had the Rayleighs on Freeport uh, in front of us a year or so ago, and some of the land park neighbors were cranky about ideas about um, things closer up to the street. They took some nasty shots at that um, southwest corner Folsom development you were talking about, and I decided not to bring that up two meetings ago when Phil Harvey was here on his project on 65th, just north of Folsom. But, no, I think great stuff's have happened. But the real question I'm asking about is, Walkability, because it seems to me, I mean, it's still not very walkable from... And to answer that point, there was no place to walk to. Now we're creating a place to walk to. I think you'll see those connections, and I think you'll start to see development marching west, and um, SMUD at 59th Street is looking to redevelop their, their courtyard site, so then you'll set up something on both ends. And I think you'll start to see that knit together. Um, but you're not going to see a pedestrian boulevard built first and then development coming. Uh, but I, I think it's going to be the other way around where you have some place to walk to and people are going to uh, start walking in the, the mediocre environment that exists there now and they're going to start demanding improvements over time. But, but that's precisely what I'm getting to. And the question is, you know, walkable space, which is all what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, if I want to walk from Target at fourth, on 4th Avenue just south of 50, and I want to walk to say, in a year for, or two from now, I want to walk to the 
development that Mr. Harvey was in front of us a couple meetings for. You know, I got a, one, I got to walk around, I got to turn a corner around a gas station. I got to, I got to walk through some naughty um, little streets designed for freeway interchanges. I got to walk under the freeway. I got to walk through that kind of weird expansive space between I, between 50 and the actual 65th Street station. I got to, it's kind of dark there. I got to walk through that little, um, I got to walk through that little strip mall just north of the 65th Street station to Folsom. You know, Folsom's a little bit more manageable, except people are whipping around all the time to get onto Elvis. I do that, so I know people do that. Um, are you, you telling me that the ultimate vision after all the parcels are filled in, that, that sooner or later that gets street improvements that substantially change the, the pedestrian experience on the, on the, on the street itself? Mm -hmm. And let's go back to the uh, couple slides here. So you look at this, uh, the street environment on the left slide. And that's, that's what it was in 2000, 2001. And then look at it today. That's where the Chipotles and all that, yeah. as the development comes in, they put in the street frontage. And I would argue that it's, it's a much better walking environment. Across the street, it's getting better. It's not perfect. I think it's an iterative process. Uh, I mean, ideally, we'd, we'd incentivize, uh, as was pointed out, that uh, some of the, the SACOG money is tied to gas tax and tied to mobility. Use some of that money to put in sidewalks and whatnot and, and then kind of create an inviting place for people to, to develop. But that money's kind of hard to come by these days. But I, so, so I think we're getting it as we can. But uh, I, the, the bike environment isn't ideal, but it's much better. If you notice, the green lanes now under Highway 50 are new. Uh, when Target went in, they had to make some improvements to the sidewalk and, and landscape improvements and lighting. Not ideal, but better. Uh, so I, I do think it will grow and, and become better over time. Okay, I guess I think, I think it's, it takes a long time for this to happen, and I think it's very good to remind people what the trajectory is, what the goal is, and it's easy to understand are we, are we, are we all the way there and we're not trying to get further, or are we 35% there and we're still working on it, you know, apropos to the, you know, to the light rail question. Everybody's talking about it. Somebody indicated, suggested they made a personal home purchasing decision on the basis of that information, and, you know, it's not happening according to plan. Right. So I'm going to turn the tables on you for a second. So I really liked Chair Burke's questions about incentives, and I think you said that said that when we did some of the fee, the fee ordinance stuff about six months ago that we had some fee, uh, fee relief for some of these. Are, are, are you talking about those very specific financing plan areas that came with the package that was one for 65th Street and there one or two others? Or were you saying there's a general rule? For the citywide fees for transportation and for parks. Uh, but to your point about 65th Street, we did identify infrastructure that was required out here and then identified a financing plan and a fee. And so that fee will allow developers to put in sewer, water improvements. Uh, oftentimes you can't just put it in front of your project. You have to bring it down the street. Today you do that and you bought it, you bought the whole thing. The next guy comes in and taps into it for free. With a finance plan and a fee, you can recoup that money. You, uh, you can get some of that money, somebody else taps into it, you get paid back. So that's- I, I appreciate that. That's incentive for developers. So that's, that's another kind of a indirect incentive for 65th Street. 
that, that they'll be able to recoup their overbuild, where before you put it in, it was all on you. Absent a specific financing plan, can you tell me what precisely is the, the, the break on fees we, we did in that, fi- in, that, in, that fee, in that fee ordinance? 40%. It was a 40% fee reduction. If for tra- transportation fee, it was a 40% reduction. That applies to? Areas within a, a quarter mile or half mile of light rail stations and some disadvantaged communities in the city. Got it. Okay. And we, are you not sure it was a quarter or a half because maybe, maybe somebody changed it at the last minute? I have this vague recollection. I, I don't remember. Okay. Okay. Um, one of the reasons I, I focus so much on this question of the walkability of my 65th Street example is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to weigh in on this, automate, this, this self-driving car thing because <laughs> I'm getting really frustrated because every time I talk to an elected official about a traffic issue, the answer I get is, oh, don't worry, there's going to be self-driving cars. It kind of becomes a, you know, a reason not to plan. I think Commissioner Kaufman raises a great question as to it, it substantially changes the nature of how you envision your system. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm openly declaring myself a skeptic on automated cars. I'm not so Luddite that I'm uh, that I don't believe it's going to happen. And in fact, as I've been burnishing this frustration, I've decided I got to go find a conference or a webinar or something and really figure this is going to happen. I hope that you, I hope you'll 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 incorporate some of the ideas that Commissioner Kaufman suggested. In fact, I think it would be great to um, come back to the commission with some kind of presentation. But I but there are so many questions I have as to where are people going to park these cars. Um, what what happens when um, what happens when you got all these cars dropping people off and then zipping off to wherever they zip off? I mean, somebody asked a question about you know what's what's the nature of the facility that you need to envision you know lots and lots of you know automated cars dropping people off. I think that's a great question, um, and I can't articulate them as well as other people have. But but I hope you'll come back to us with a with burnishing on some sort of the questions we want to ask, because I'm not sure what the answers are. But I'm going to put a pitch in for transit post-automated car, because I do think we have this situation where people have this fantasy that all of their parking issues are going to go away because they're going to get to go door-to-door on this automated car, and it's going to come pick them up, and it's going to disappear. And at the end of the day, that means people aren't walking. And all this stuff we're talking about, about transit-oriented development, it's not just the transit. It's the walk to the transit. Um, and apropos just to one other question, I, I, I think it might be a good idea to create a, tw- half, a quarter mile incentive zone and a half mile incentive zone. And I don't know what people think is the length somebody will walk to a transit station because, you know, we had a big debate about some parcel on a meeting tour ago that was near the, I forgot, it's the next station over from um, 65th Street. It's the Power In Street station, and it looks great the way the crow flies, but walking there, <laughs> that's, that's not easy. And to that point, it will never change if we keep making small nicks and cuts, death by a thousand cuts, it will never get better. People will complain about the walk-in environment on the other side of the street, on Folsom Boulevard in that area. It's marginal, it's vacant, underutilized land, 
hey, who would want to walk? And we've heard this from a developer. Who would want to walk? Well, who would want to walk here? You look at this map. Now look at it today. It will happen, but you have to, you have to hold out for the type of development you want. But if you say it'll, um, it's a lousy environment, so we'll take whatever anybody offers, you're never going to get uh, a 65th Street village. You're going to get kind of a patchwork of underdeveloped land. What kind of nicks and cuts are you talking about? Uh, car washes, gas stations, mini storage, drive-throughs. Those are those are the common underutilized lands that happen that don't go away. I've never seen a mini storage go away. They they make a lot of money for not much investment. Hardly anybody works there. One or two people on you know a couple acres. So that's that's my caution in. Uh, uh, kind of giving up because of the current environment. Not to say that the current environment isn't important, but but to to complain about the walking environment, again, I'd look at that slide and say it wasn't pretty 15 years ago, but it's, it's, it's improving and it will get better. Uh, if I were a little bit more technologically savvy, I'd excerpt what you just said on the tape and make one of those moveon.org viral videos that goes <laughs> on Facebook and keep recirculating it at strategic times, but uh, the point's made. Um, I guess I'm, the last thing I'm gonna say is, um, uh, I really like some, uh, I really liked all of Chair Burke's questions about incentives and such, but we, we, send, we spend, I know we have to stay in our lane over here, we spend so much time talking about, um, you know, the regulatory side of the <laughs> equation. And, you know, given the cost pressures we have and the nature of mixed-use development and all that other stuff, um, unless we find a way to unite finance and regulation from a solution standpoint, we're not going to get there. And I know we're not supposed to talk about finance. I thought Commissioner Coffin's point about, you know, looking at some of those state fu funding sources and thinking, you know, about their outcome potential in terms of tra transportation infrastructure development, a.k.a. if you fund a little housing, you get a, a boost on your goal, your, your transportation goal. I know we can't solve that problem here. I don't know if in the planning process you can work some of that in, but again, you know, my final comment is until we work finance and regulation to work together, we're not going to solve these problems. But that's a comment. You don't have to say anything. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFaso. Thank you, colleagues. Thank you, Mr. McDonald. Uh, we'll go now, um, leaving item number f Oh. Sorry, Commissioner Bodipa member. My comment is very brief. Um, Commissioner LaFaso talked about the safe pathways. I just would hope in some way uh, this plan would talk about lighting and just other safety factors um, as well. That's my only comment. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Bodipa member. Uh, now, colleagues, we'll go to item number five, draft scope of work for the general plan five-year update. Uh, Mr. Mendoza, Mr. McDonald. Good evening, Chair Burke and Commissioners. I'm Remy Mendoza with the Community Development Department. 
In June, the City Council passed a resolution directing staff to initiate a five-year update of the general plan. While we won't formally begin this effort until the spring of 2018, prior to releasing the RFP and hiring consultants, staff have prepared a draft scope of work to identify the major components of this update. Today, we are requesting your review and comment on this draft scope of work. First, I have just a few background slides to segue into our current status of the general plan and the next five-year update. So what is a general plan? A general plan is a comprehensive, long-term plan for the development of the community. It's required by state law of all cities and counties. It must address the following elements, land use, circulation, housing, conservation, open space, noise, safety, and a new element, environmental justice. And it also must be implemented through zoning, subdivision approvals, public, and public infrastructure projects. This slide depicts the implementation tools to make a general plan into reality. At the top of the pyramid is a general plan which serves as an overarching umbrella document for other plans and codes. While the general plan is more of a long-term and more of a general document, all other specific plans, ordinances, and codes must also be consistent with the general plan. The major components of the current plan were adopted in March of 2009 with the 2030 general plan. It was, it's a citywide document uh, that was undertaken with a citywide effort and extensive community outreach. Some of the key issues addressed in the 2030 general plan included where do you put all of our allocated growth, hundreds of thousands of people and jobs as well as housing units. How do you grow? Are we going to expand outward, build inward, and what should that growth look like? What will be the community design, neighborhood, and character? The new 2030 general plan is a smart growth plan that promotes a mix of uses rather than separate uses. It accepts all of our allocated growth within the existing footprint. It increased the density and intensity along opportunity sites, including commercial corridors and light rail stations. As a result of the general plan, many planning activities were initiated, including the, up the update of the zoning code. We adopted a climate action plan, rezoned key opportunity areas, adopted a shovel-ready program priority areas, we provide CIP consistency review, as well, up, as well as updating the parks and recreation master plan. Uh, the general plan is on a five-year update cycle now, and in 2015, we completed a technical update with key components, including we up, updated the forecast for the planning time frame from 20, through 2035. Uh, a newly updated housing element was completed as well. We ensured compliance with uh, recent 200-year flood level uh, risk legislation. We renewed the master EIR for another uh, five-year streamlining uh, benefit, uh, integrated the climate action plan, and added urban agriculture policies. The life of the next general plan will be from 2020 to 2040. Five of the key components of the next update include a new master environmental impact report, an environmental justice element or goals and policies integrated throughout the general plan, a new climate action plan, a major revision of the mobility element, including vehicle miles traveled incorporating uh, VMT, and uh, taking steps to have the city designated as an AARP age-friendly community. In updating the master environmental impact report during the next five-year update will be critically, and it will be critical and very important in order to ensure uh, many of the benefits for private and public projects. Some of these benefits include basic environmental clearance for these projects, uh, reduced need for very expensive environmental impact reports, and faster project processing. 
Um, legislation adopted in 2016 requires cities and counties with any disadvantaged communities to incorporate environmental justice-related goals, policies, and objectives into their general plan. The 2040 general plan will identify objectives and policies to reduce health risk in disadvantaged communities by means that include but are not limited to reducing pollution exposure, including improving air quality, promoting public facilities, promoting food access, promoting safe and sanitary homes, as well as promoting physical activity. The state also recently adopted new midterm 2030 and longer term 2050 greenhouse gas reduction targets. Consistent with the new state mandates, the city's new climate action plan will reduce Sacramento's greenhouse gas emissions and help prepare the community to adapt for climate change. Staff will be seeking a consultant to quantify the existing and projected community-wide greenhouse gas emissions. A consultant can also establish greenhouse gas emission reduction targets over the life of the plan and identify and analyze the greenhouse gas emissions resulting from sources in the community. Uh, we'll also be identifying a set of specific enforceable uh, uh, measurables that uh, collectively will achieve the emission target and establish a mechanism to monitor the plan's progress and to require an amendment if the plan is falling short. Another key change in the 2040 general plan is a major revisit of the mobility element, including VMT. In 2013, Governor Brown signed Senate Bill 743, which creates a process to change the way that transportation impacts are analyzed under CEQA. The new leg legislation calls for removing automobile delay as a significant impact on the environment and replacing it with vehicle miles traveled criteria to determine whether a project cost has a significant impact in the environment related to transportation. The 2040 general plan update will include a major revisit of the mobility element, including the use of vehicle miles traveled, or VMT, as a metric to measure traffic impact. The following slide helps to illustrate some of the barriers to infill development that have occurred using level of service analysis. Uh, here's an example of an infill project of four homes. Analysis of uh, infill using level of service, uh, there's a relatively uh, little vehicle travel loaded onto the network. Um, however, there are uh, numerous level of service impacts. Um, and then with analysis for greenfield development, um, there's typically three to four times the travel loaded onto the network relative to infill development, but relatively few level of service impacts. Um, some of the consequences of level of service analysis have been that um, mitigation usually requires an expansion of the roadway network. Um, LOS-based analysis generates impacts to other modes and the environment. Uh, mitigation increases public long-term operation and maintenance costs, and level of services has the, uh, the effect of punishing infill development. Some of the benefits of VMT will include streamlined TOD infill and, uh, and uh, approval for transit projects, as well as um, an attack on regional congestion more effectively, reducing future pavement maintenance deficits, massive public health improvements, as well as re uh, reduction in, in GHG and other emissions. Uh, the general plan update will also incorporate uh, the fifth element, uh, taking initial steps to have the city designated as an AARP uh, network of age-friendly communities. Um, this will mean, doing so will help ensure that we are creating neighborhoods that allow older residents to remain in their communities as they age. A key part of joining the network will be the undertaking of a comprehensive baseline assessment of the age friendliness of the community, including but not limited to the eight dom domains of livability. These include 
outdoor spaces and buildings, transportation, housing, social participation, um, and also respect and social inclusion, civic participation and employment, uh, communication information, and community and health services. Some of the next steps um, in this effort uh, for the 2040 general plan update include finalizing the scope of work over the next uh, couple of months and early next year, uh, releasing an RFP in early 2018, um, in late, late spring, we anticipate kicking off the 2040 general plan effort uh, along with our consultants on board. Um, and then uh, that would be a two-year effort that we anticipate to be completed in uh, 2020, in early 2020. Um, thank you, and we welcome any questions or feedback that you may have on the draft scope of work for the 2040 general plan. Thank you so much, Mr. Mendoza. Um, any commissioner questions, comments? Commissioner Ogilvie. Thanks for the presentation. Um, on the social equity and environmental justice front, um, I was surprised not to see anything, especially what we just heard about, about transportation and, you know, focusing public or ensuring that, you know, affordable housing is centered around various transportation options. I feel like that should be highlighted. Um, as well as, you know, just affordable housing in general, not, I mean, for everybody, I think it's becoming more and more of an issue here. Um, so I think on the social equity front and environmental justice as well, I mean, if you're stressed. Um. Thank you, that's a really good feedback. Um, we uh, will certainly be looking at all the requirements uh, per the new environmental justice state law, including uh, safe access to housing, housing within disadvantaged communities and um, that's a good connection with transportation and, and an important component um, as well um, in terms of social equity. Um, there will be an opportunity to um, possibly make minor modifications to the housing element, inserting uh, uh, goals and policies, but we don't want to uh, run the risk of decertifying the housing element. And there will be a major uh, housing element update uh, that will probably begin in 2019 or 2020 uh, for the next housing element update that will look at these issues as well at a citywide level. What do you mean? You said decertifying the housing element? What would... I'm sorry? Did you say something that you didn't want to run the risk of decertifying the housing element? Uh, yes, as we up do this update of the general plan, the, the housing element was adopted in 2013, and it's good for an eight-year cycle from 2013 to 2021. Um, so the update is complete, um, and the next update for the housing element will be for the 2022 through 2030 cycle. So as we look at some of these um, important issues, there's a big housing crisis in Sacramento and there are some important issues um, that are relevant um, as part of this general plan update that we can look at. But at this time, we won't be completely opening up the housing element um, to um, allocate all of our resources to that uh, crisis. Um, but we will be looking at it with respect to um, disadvantaged communities. Thanks. Thank you so much, Commissioner Ogilvie. Commissioner Kaufman. Thank you, Chair Burke. Thank you, Mr. Mendoza. You know, this is just like a ton of work for the next couple of years, so good luck. <laughs> um, just two quick comments. One, you've heard us meeting after meeting talking about autonomous vehicles, not just me, but others. 
I think it's time in this general plan update to have an explicit conversation. It doesn't have to pretend that you know what's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but we're getting closer. And waiting for another update five years from now is too late. We need to be actively thinking about this in every, uh, every implication it has. Because it will, whether it, when it happens, it will change virtually everything that has to do with land use and mobility. Uh, secondly, I know that the, the cornerstone of our general plan for some time now has been the strategy of building inward. I think I would really like to see a more complete discussion in the general plan update of what that means. And I'll give you some, I'll give you a specific, two specific examples. Um, we're here approving and considering, in the midst of big neighborhood fights, projects that will increase density in particular neighborhoods. We have, we have rung those density uh, increases out of all different kinds of neighborhoods in the central city and surrounding areas. Uh, at the same time, we're looking at projects in the Tomas where we have reduced density. I, I understand there are a lot of reasons for it, and I think there's a case to be made for um, a diverse set of neighborhoods, but it's somewhat maddening to fight the fights that we fight and then watch other areas have reductions in density at the same time we're trying to build inward. So I want to understand what building inward means in the Tomas. Okay. Um, and, and what directions we might take to make smart growth something that happens in Natomas as well as every other part of town. Um, so that's, that's example number one. The second example is that um, I don't know what the annexation plans are for the city. I don't know what spheres of influence we have. I don't know what directions people are looking to grow. But in the course of having a, a strategy that's focused on building inward and having more compact development, uh, annexing land seems contrary to that. And yet, we're engaged in doing that. Now, we've heard that issue. We, I, you know, I, haven't, I haven't really been happy with that, but I don't think I'm prepared to stand in the way of those things happening. But I think we need to understand what that means and why we're pursuing that. And, and there's, there are bigger issues here than just what the general plan has to show. If, if, I, were, um, if I were an Atomas resident and I was seeing all these things happen here, adding more land, uh, reducing density, I would still have an expectation that I'm going to receive quality urban services from the city of Sacramento. I'm entitled to that. And as you reduce densities and you spread out into new areas, you're making that unit cost of providing service more expensive. It's going to make it harder and harder for the city to meet the uh, aspirations that those residents have. So one of two things is going to happen. It's going to be sort of like an internal sort of civil war and big budget fights that go on and on about that. Or ultimately, a place like Natoma says, you know what, we should just be our own city. Um, and I think that creates enormous problems for the city of Sacramento. So having a clear understanding of what building inward means has implications in all of those areas 
and um, I, I personally would like to to see that in the next general plan update. Thank you, uh, Commissioner. That's all really good feedback. Uh, with respect to um, automated vehicles, um, I, we met with uh, Public Works yesterday, and they are undertaking uh, consultant services to do an analysis on the transportation technology strategy that ultimately will be incorporated into the major uh, revision of the mobility element. So that will be a big piece of, of that as well. And we'll be um, looking at annexation as part of our general plan update. Um, and uh, different uh, parts of the community and uh, acknowledging that there are 10 still unique community planning areas throughout the city. Um, we do plan to go do extensive community outreach to the different uh, communities and um, engage them in sort of their vision for um, their neighborhoods and their communities over the next 20 years and how that ties into um, expectations for development. Thank you, Commissioner Kaufman. Commissioner Bodipa member. Thank you, Chair Burke. Um, just a couple of quick questions regarding or recommendations or questions regarding the scope. Um, I noticed that in the scope of work, you talked about the community outreach. That's something I know we talked about when you brought the 2035 plan to us. And it says that the staff would, would handle community outreach. Um, is there Are there any thoughts about having, bringing in consultants to, I guess, facilitate getting more Absolutely. I didn't mention it as one of the five key changes, but it is one of the most important components of our general plan update is to be able to do outreach with all of the neighborhoods throughout the entire city multiple times um, from the beginning to the very end of the process and being able to engage them in these important discussions of climate change and the transportation technology component of the mobility plan and um, all of these uh, very important discussions. So we certainly will be looking at um, being able to uh, maximize our outreach by attending existing meetings, uh, inviting stakeholders to meet with us and us to meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, possibly do uh, focus groups and scientific polling as well as part of this general plan update. So just just to clarify, in reviewing the scope, it, it said that that would be something that would be handled by staff, that you wouldn't be using consultants for that. Is that indeed the case? or We haven't finalized the scope, and I think initially we thought that staff would, uh, like we've done in the past, it, it could be very expensive for consultants to do it, but um, we certainly do want a level of expertise from a professional public outreach firm who uh, can assist us with whether it's scientific polling or focus groups or uh, just having a more robust outreach effort. So I think it's going to be um, something that will, will be combined with staff and consultant work. So we'll be probably modifying, modifying that in the scope of work. I would definitely encourage uh, leveraging, and I see that you're looking at different technological aspects of reaching out to folks online, what have you, but definitely uh, leverage some of the consulting firms that have newer technology, even like live chat type of things to allow folks to engage because I think the environmental justice component um, as a part of the plan is important, but just being able to realize that as a part of the plan development to making sure that those disadvantaged groups that typically can't make some of those meetings have access um, would be a really important thing to see in the scope of work. Um, but definitely like the fact that you're looking at innovative approaches. Um, I guess the, the other question, and maybe this is a little out there, I definitely agree. I think everything we said as relates to um, looking at uh, TODs and multiple modes of transportation, definitely want to see that reflected. And to Todd's point, the, the points about uh, uh, autonomous vehicles is important. 
but also I'm wondering in terms of uh, innovative ways of looking at even preparing the document itself um, for public consumption. Uh, obviously, these general plans are large volume documents, but if there are other other means, um, I think the presentation you did, the slide and PowerPoint presentation that you gave us last time was a real good uh, summary that maybe the public would, would be able to benefit from as well. Uh, I think looking at ways to make sure that it's easy for folks to understand what that plan would be while still meeting the state guidelines for a general plan would be something we'd like to be able to see as well. Those are Thank my you. questions and comments. Good feedback. Thank you, Com Thank you Commissioner Bodipa member. Uh, Commissioner Yee. Thank you, Chair. Uh, a couple questions. One following up on our email from this afternoon. And that's the notion of <clears throat> SB 1000, especially the housing uh, comment that is uh, in the staff report. And this coordinates with a comment you made earlier about decertifying the, or concern about decertifying the housing element. Uh, general plans update every five years, housing element every eight. How do you get those two related documents to ever sync up without the risk of decertifying the housing element? The goals are compatible. Absolutely. You need to say some of the same things. And in consideration of how quickly this environment changes, how do you ever get the two documents to sync up with each other? Well, uh, they're internally consistent, and I, I guess I don't think of them entirely as two documents separately. Uh, really, it's one document, and the housing element is just a component of it. Um, I think um, uh, in thinking of the dimension of time, there will probably be some overlap in when we're updating the general plan and the housing element begins to get updated. So some of our conversations, discussions, outreach, and analysis will um, benefit from that and so that the, we will be synced up in, um, you know, input that we're receiving from the community, uh, policies that are being developed uh, uh, with staff and the consultants and discussions that we're having um, with our elected officials and uh, advisory boards and commissions. It used to be an update every five years. Yes. But it was never quite in sync with the five-year updates of the general plan, but it was five years. So considering how important housing is and the situation we find, the city finds itself in relative to housing and probably every other community, what was the, thing, what was the thought process in extending that to eight years? Jim, I uh, have a little history on that. Tied it to the cycle for the MTP SCS development. Um, I think it was an incentive to develop consistent with the, the kind of the regional blueprint, um, not having to crack open the housing element every four years. It's a, it's a big, long, expensive process to do. Um, I, I think we may have overstated the, the notion of not wanting to undo the general plan, We'd, but we can certainly add to it. We can add all that we want to it, but we don't want to... to uh, modify what's already been adopted, but we can certainly add policies to that. So there's no limit on on, on the changes we can as make in addition to the housing element. As long as it's consistent with the right, change right, direction right. to do what's already there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I will admit that I'm a bit puzzled by the age-friendly community. 
and it talks about neighborhoods and communities and such. Are we actually talking about a community separate and distinct that is purposefully identified as age friendly? Because I'm looking at the eight uh, domains of livability. They apply to everything and anything. What What is the intent of this designation, this differentiation? You look at issues of age and you look at issues of accessibility. How do they differ? What's the intent of this? I think there's a lot of overlap between age-friendly and and livable communities, right? They're walkable. Uh, uh, they're friendly to everybody. I don't. I don't think you're going to see a wholesale change in our general plan because of our our commitment to participate in this effort. Uh, I think we we do a lot already. We have uh, an accessibility ordinance that requires all new subdivisions to to make those uh, upgrades available. And, and so I, th I think we do a lot already. I think I, um, we want to look at extending our grid 3.0 planning effort to beyond the grid to the remainder of the city. So it's, it's walkable, bikeable, transit-friendly, and that certainly supports the AARP efforts. So there are things like that that, uh, again, like all boats rise, uh, what we're doing for the whole city I think is going to be complementary to this. So I, I don't think it's, it's not for one area uh, but but it would apply citywide. We want the city to be a place that you would feel comfortable aging in place, so that you don't have to go off someplace to be taken care of, but you can live where you are. And I I understand all of that. It, uh -huh. It's just, <clears throat> I guess, a little puzzled at why a specific designation topic. Is this a discretionary inclusion in the general plan? It is, and this is uh, one of the mayor's initiatives. He's he's asked that we participate in this effort, uh, so we thought it would be good to weave into the general plan. There are some marketing benefits if you can uh, tell the city as a as a place that's age friendly and an attractive place to to live. I I'm just tool. fearful of, of a of a redundancy, and therefore a lack of focus and maybe a lack of clarity with the other requirements that we already have. Again, trying to distinguish accessibility from elements of age-friendly, age-supportive, they all seem to me to be the same goal. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yee. Any other Commissioner comments, questions? I have a couple uh, questions. Uh, the report talked about a general plan maintenance fee. What is that? Where does that come from? What is that used for? I know it's maybe to hire an EIR consultant, but can you give some more background on that? Sure. The general plan maintenance fee, um, I believe it was established around uh, 2009, and it's a fee uh, that's assessed on development uh, in order to undertake updates of the general plan. That's all projects that go to the planning department counter. They get charged a fee for that. Okay. That's charged at the building permit stage, and so there's a small per square foot fee that we charge. And that pays not only for consultant time, but also for staff time. Oh, okay. 
And we talked about the big, you know, chuck of the of the, the report to me is this climate action plan and the greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm imagining circulation and mobility and transportation is probably the largest generator of that. We have a lot of folks who commute long distances for work, you know, Bay Area and back every day. Is this only looking at Sacramento inside the boundaries or is it looking at policies and ways to kind of deal with those super commuters in, in a unique way? I think it's uh, all built into part of what we look at, um, whatever the um, uh, commute patterns are in the city. We'll be looking specifically within the city of Sacramento, uh, but we'll be looking if there are you know super commuters, if that's a pattern of development that's occurring, it's something that uh, will be built into our analysis to, to study and understand kind of what the impacts are of that in uh, terms of uh, increasing greenhouse gas emissions. And the reason I bring that up, because there's a big talk about this, you know, the mega region, Sacramento, Stockton, the Bay Area, you know, 100,000 people leave the Sacramento area to go to the Bay Area every day. I think 80,000 from the Bay Area to Sacramento, and that's a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So if we only focus on trying to reduce from our city boundaries, and I think about regionally, um, I don't think we'll, we'll get there. So that's that's kind of my thought process and bringing that up. I know SACOG plays a bigger role in that than city planning department, but um, I don't know if there's a, a strong role that the city can play in planning or whatever department. Every jurisdiction is required to have their own clam climate action plan, so we're not on the hook for everybody else. And so, but it's an interesting point. Uh, if we're jobs rich and housing poor, and we have a lot of people coming in, for example, in the central city, 94% of the people who work in the central city don't live in the central city. They live elsewhere. But we're required to mitigate for what, what we generate here, so what the employment uh, generates in terms of traffic. Uh, what the ha our housing that the, in the city generates in terms of traffic, energy consumption, and so on. Um, it's, a, it's a good point about the, um, what do you do about the edges and people crossing the border. And again, and, and, and what's been brought up tonight about kind of the messaging and how you convey that, I think we need to do a better job this time around about how, how the climate action plan works and, and address those kinds of issues. I think we need to have messaging for the rest of us and not just the technicians who worked on the climate action plan. And so that's one of our goals is to make it easy to use and easy to understand. Thank you so much. And one more question for Commissioner Yee. Thank you. Just a short comment. You, know, you may remember back in 2005 when the current, when the process that led to the adoption of the 2009 general plan there were a number of stakeholder meetings and such. I mean, there were a lot of, there's a lot of uh, outreach effort. And I do recall that one of the efforts was focused on high school students. And, you know, if, if there is a group to reach out to, uh, to get their opinion, but also to get them engaged in the process, you know, you, with all the activity that's going on in our street, you know, that started, I think, my first inkling of our street as, part of this body and others, you know, was clear back before uh, 1990s. And you start seeing momentum now. You know, it is these efforts, these visions, you know, what we're trying to do benefits that age group more so than, say, my age group. 
Uh, and I know that it's an effort uh, to organize uh, all of that. But just a reminder, I thought that was one of the more interesting workshops uh, back during that process. And if we could get, if the city could get the engagement from high school students, I think there are a lot of benefits to that. So just a reminder. We plan on doing that, Chairman. That's a very valuable input that we look at. Uh, we're looking forward to having as part of this general plan update with high school, youth, college-age students, um, finding ways to engage with them. And we've already started some of that uh, preliminary outreach. Fantastic. Seeing no, see no further commissioner questions or comments, we'll go to public comment. We do have a comment card from Paul Philly. Chair Burke, members of the commission, I'm Paul Philly with the Sacramento Metropolitan Air Quality Management District. I'm very excited to be here tonight. Um, this is a really important topic, uh, so much so that I'm not taking my kids to the tree lighting ceremony, um, which I'll make it up to them later. Um, <laughs> but I do want to talk about four of the uh, goals that Remy uh, spoke about and then three outcomes that I hope can uh, come out of this plan. Uh, the first is using VMT as a metric for uh, traffic impacts instead of level of service. This is uh, state law, but it's very important to us at the Air District. Um, people who live in Midtown, for example, household VMT is around 8 to 14 per household per day, vehicle miles traveled. Uh, if you're living out in uh, Rancho Murrieta, you're looking at around 80. Uh, regional average is around 52. And so making sure that we have benefits and sequest streamlining and encouraging development in low VMT neighborhoods is something that we're very interested as an air district, especially since most of the emissions in this region come from mobile sources. Um, updating the climate action plan is also a key thing. There's been a lot of talk tonight about development incentives. And if you're developing in the city of Sacramento, uh, Stacia gives you a checklist and you go down and you're, you're done. And if you develop in the county or another jurisdiction, you have to come up with a climate action plan for your project. And it's very bespoke as opposed to very streamlined, which is something that the city has. And so we'd really encourage you, especially as a jurisdiction with low VMT, to continue that support for your developers by having a qualified climate action plan. Um, we're very excited about uh, SB 1000 and the environmental justice element. You have um, disadvantaged communities in the city of Sacramento and we're already working with the city to try to identify funding for those neighborhoods and making sure that equity is, is very baked into the general plan is something we're interested in. Um, the vision statement of our agency is clean air for all with emphasis on the for all. And so we're, we're excited that that's coming forward. And then finally, um, with respect to the AARP age-friendly city, um, we don't get old, be, you know, when, when we stop exercising and stop moving, um, that's really when aging process accelerates and happens. And people who move and are active uh, do better during air quality events, especially when we're having forest fires and other things. And a community that works for seniors works for families, it works for everybody. And especially with autonomous vehicles, Amazon, I can imagine a world where in two hours anything you ever want could be to your door, uh, making sure that we build communities that people can walk to. In my remaining 15 seconds, um, <laughs> I would like you to consider um, having a tree canopy goal. 
uh, as part of this general plan, especially for a climate resiliency. We're looking to see increased heat. That leads to increased ozone formation. And so for walking and reduced air quality impacts, consider having a, a citywide tree canopy goal. Um, we also, you may have heard us talk about MERV 13 with projects near roadways and rail lines. And instead of us coming and asking you in letters every time something happens, um, a more systematic approach where this automatically is applied to all developments instead of ones needing your discretionary approval and only if yes. And then um, you already had a bunch of talk about TOD, so I'll leave you guys to consider that as well. But thank you for your time. Thank you, Mr. Philly. Question for Commissioner, Mr. Philly, uh, we have a question for Commissioner LaFalsa. Thank you, sir, for being here. My regards to your children. Don't make it up to them by making them watch the tape of this meeting, please. Um, uh, just a, but it's um, the best planning quick. commission in California. I mean, you're right. Thank you. You you listen to our chair. That's good advice on your part. When you uh, made the comment about the climate action plan and the checklist, did I understand you correctly to saying that you think the checklist is the right approach as opposed to the bespoke plan? I just want to make sure I understood you correctly. I'm sorry. Say again. You contrasted our climate action plan with this checklist and mentioned other jurisdictions required each project to have a bespoke plan? Yes. You, you were saying our, ours is better? Yes. Just want to make sure I got that. Okay. Yeah. Secondly, that thing on the tree canopy, you said something, there was some something something 13 that you ask us for and you want us to, what, what is that? Oh, um, MERV 13. It's, MERV 13. So... Um, Whenever there is a sensitive receptor going in next to a source of mobile source air toxic contaminants like, say, Interstate 5 or an active rail line, um, we find that it's not really a regional pollution. Well, it is a regional pollution issue, but it's, uh, you get very focused impacts next to those sources. And so we have requested in the past, and Stacia uh, can verify, that s certain projects going next to these sources have enhanced air filtration. Uh, or additional designs such as adding a row of trees or facing the building away from the freeway to try to minimize exposure. And so even though the fleet is getting cleaner, um, as an interim measure, uh, we do ask for enhanced air filtration and other measures that are exposure-reducing measures. And, and just if I understand correctly, the, the enhanced air filtration mitigation is often trees, but it is not always trees? It, um, it can be mechanical filtration, it can be trees, it can be a lot of different things. Um, for example, Bay Area in their health code require, sorry, Bay Area, San Francisco, city of San Francisco and county, um, requires in certain parts of the city that any development going in has to have uh, this kind of air filter. So a standard static electric air filter in your house is usually MERV 8. Uh, this would be MERV 13. Hospitals usually use around MERV 16 to sort of give you a, a sense of scale. Um, it doesn't work that well in the Bay Area because it's nice and people leave their windows open. Um, the mitigation, well, it's not technically mitigation measures because CEQA is about environment and not, we'll get into that later. But as a condition of approval, it's more effective in the Valley because we have hot summers and cold winters. So those windows are closed more often and we run our HVACs more. And it's about reducing exposure over longer periods of time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner Fox. So, uh, Mr. Philly, one more question. Uh, Commissioner Pluckybaum. You mentioned a tree canopy goal. Do you have a recommendation for what a tree canopy goal could be or examples from other municipalities? Not on the top of my head, but I can give you, it varies based on jurisdiction. It varies based on where you are in the city. Natomas may have a different goal than downtown and so on and so forth. But um, 
I, 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 can, I can get you uh, some examples of other jurisdictions' goals. Okay. Just, just not on a tree lighting night. Thank you so much, Mr. Philly. Thank you. Seeing no further public comment, I'm going to close the public comment. Commissioner LaFossa. Thank you, Mr. Chair. A um, couple questions or comments. Uh, cleaning up some others. Uh, adding cleanup in the sense of following others' good work. Um, just quickly, uh, I'm glad, Commissioner Yee, you brought up AARP before I did. But I do think if you look at their website and read what the process is all about, it's like a five-year process. I think it might make a little bit more sense to you. And I do think that AARP's um, program kind of weaves in the notion of the things as, as applicable to um, individuals who aren't necessarily within AARP's target population. Um, but it makes, it makes more sense if you read it. I will say I was, only, the only thing I was going to raise I do think is important because, you know, sometimes when we talk about, you know, central city density, we sort of target these two populations we're always talking about, you know, the, the downsizing seniors and the hip and groovy millennials. And in many respects, the economic situations of those two populations are very different. And I might submit that the, the latter of the two I just cited has the more vulnerable economic circumstances and uh, keeping our eye on that ball is important, but uh, since that environment benefits others other than senior citizens, the point is made. I, I wanted to address a little bit the, uh, the environmental justice element and the question about the housing element. Um, I, am, I, I think it's a great point, although I'm curious. I recall when SB 1000 was passed, and I don't recall what the intentions of the authors were, but they must have had a notion of how they envisioned it interacting with the housing element and where they thought the state, um, the state intervention on dealing with you know, affordable housing issues was intended to lie in the code. But that'll take me to my real question here, which is, so as part of the housing package that the legislature adopted this year, um, there were lots of very nuanced but impactful uh, amendments to the housing element law. Um, you'll read them in the newspaper as, quote, there was added teeth, close quote. Um, the two notable added teeths applicable to this discussion are, one, more things that the Department of Housing and Community Development can do to cities that are out of compliance. And, of course, they're looking for things that aren't really applicable to us, like, you know, upscale Bay Area cities that refuse to cite a single parcel that you could build an affordable housing complex and that kind of stuff. But one of the other things that gets discussed is, I understand, and I'm not a housing element expert, but that generally speaking, when a city is certified for that cycle and then a city does not meet its obligations under that cycle, HCD pretty much can only sanction that city after the completion of that cycle. And I guess the sanction we hear most about is you don't get your eight-year cycle, you go back to a four-year cycle for the subsequent. I understand that um, a significant change in the law was HCD no longer has to wait for the completion of the eight-year cycle before it can do anything. Um, and I have some good uh, little birdie commentary that HCD intends to start using that authority quickly in 2018. So I, I think it's valuable to um, get some clarity on what, how we look at the uh, environmental justice element from a housing vantage point. I thought Mr. McDonald's comment about, you know, not getting too tied up in this question of, you know, decertification and, you know, amp amplifying, complementing, not contradicting, you know, was a great 
path out of that conundrum. But I'm just wondering if we, we want to make sure we're clear on what significance there may be with regard to the changes in the law that may not make that certification quite have the same meaning it meant when we adopted it four or so years ago. Um, I do recall the last time or maybe the time before we did our annual housing element approach, you know, as, as because of the recession, we're always looking at numbers where, um, you know, our affordable housing development is com relatively, in comparative terms, more robust than our market rate housing development. That was starting to change in the last one. Um, obviously, the, the question is, you know, there's a set degree of public subsidy that's a little bit more recession-proof than what occurs from the private market. But in one of those discussions, I thought I heard a staff say, and I know it was one of you two gentlemen, that due to the recession, there was some belief that SACOG might adjust those numbers downward and that some jurisdictions um, um, might not be meeting their goal and might find themselves meeting their goal because some numbers were changed. I, I don't know if I'm recalling incorrectly, but I also bring it up because I think that given where the legislature went this year and how HCD intends to implement some of that, I don't think adjusting numbers downward is what anybody's thinking about doing. I think adjusting numbers upward is what people are going to think about doing. Um, so the, 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 the question, long-winded and meandering as it is, is have you thought about how the law changes to the housing element from this year are going to impact uh, the general plan discussion? I uh, am aware that um, our staff, our colleagues are doing their due diligence at this time uh, in uh, concert with the city attorney's office to look at all of the new uh, state regulations and understanding the implications for um, the housing element. So that's currently underway. And as we undertake the 2040 general plan effort um, and an earnest look at the EJ environmental justice and SB 1000 element and the best practices and other jurisdictions that have completed their environmental justice elements and what's worked and what hasn't worked and what lessons can we learn um, uh, as we look at housing issues um, uh, that's going to be an important part in sort of both our educational learning experience and in how we move forward in updating the general plan uh, and uh, uh, addressing in earnest the uh, environmental justice element. Appreciate that. Clearly the matter has been brought to your attention and We'll keep going forward. Um, I won't belabor VMT, especially since I believe the final guidelines from uh, OPR came out on Monday, 169 pages. I, w I was going to read them before this meeting, but no, I didn't get it done. I'll bet you guys didn't get a chance either. So it sounds to me like a more, and, and I appreciate Mr. McDonald, earlier you said that Public Works was going to come and talk about VMT. So there's no more point in belaboring that. Um, I, uh, I, um, I wanted to dovetail a little bit off of, point that Commissioner Kaufman made, and I'm only dovetailing off of Commissioner Kaufman's because his points are so good they're worth engaging. Um, but on the subject of annexations and this sort of bigger perspective, I, we, we did sort of drift into this question, I believe it was Greenbrier or um, uh, Panhandle, and maybe we had them in the same night and that's kind of why we did that. But um, I, I left that discussion um, wanting us to take sort of a little bit more regional approach to this. And I suggested at one point to Ms. Cosgrove that uh, we have SACOG come here and really drill down on the blueprint for us. I hear lots about what the blueprint means and I read the blueprint myself and it's a very amorphous document. 
And if you talk to somebody at SACOG, they're very quick to say, you know, there's no mandates on it. The mandates are what the local jurisdictions choose to do. But it's a good, it, it's, it's best use among lots of uses, maybe not the best, a really good use, is to give regional perspective. Because I myself, you know, wonder about these questions about intensifying the core and what that means in context. And uh, I myself came armed with a couple examples of thoughts I had about where we have downzoned uh, some areas that are not in the core of the city and what that means. Um, but as we consider new suburban development, which was what was behind that discussion that evening that I made reference to earlier, um, I think it'd be really good to refresh our use of the blueprint as a guidepost because we know that while, you know, you read all these things about millennials' taste and what it means for smart growth, and if you read the numbers, what they say is previous generation, 40% want to live in cities, 60% want to live in the suburbs, and then they say that 60% of the millennials want to live in the, in the more urban areas and 40% of the millennials want to live in the suburbs. And then you start seeing stories of millennials hitting roughly age 35 and subtle changes in their housing preference. The bottom line is, even as the nature of the market is changing and the changing of the urban factors is changing, there are still new people entering the housing market who want to buy suburban homes. And I know if we don't look at it from the standpoint of our own city, all we're going to do is drive suburban development to outside our own boundaries. It will go to Rancho Cordova. It will go to whatever incorporated area is just outside our, our, um, you know, our urban boundary. And I don't know how the sphere of influence works north of Alberta or is it whatever's that northern city boundary. Anyway, I think it'd be really good for us to understand what our own suburban expansion within the city's limits or the city's sphere of influence or potentially annexed areas means in a regional context. Because if we're building something in Sacramento that results in something closer to downtown than if it were built in unincorporated Sacramento, we all know places where people want to build at unincorporated Sacramento that are going to have an air quality impact on our region. I think we're doing a service to our region by building those things closer in, even if from another perspective they may seem counterintuitive. Um, I really like the point that Commissioner Kaufman made about the, um, the, 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 the financing side. Again, it speaks to what I said earlier that I do wish we spent more time talking about um, um, finance in, con in, in concert with regulation. Um, somebody here threw out the term fiscalization of land use about six months ago. I mean, if it's true that, um, that de-densifying a place increased the cost of service, either you know more pipes between houses or more travel time for police officers you know, from police station to residence. If that has a fiscal impact, why not? Why not incorporate that in our thinking? Um, the reality is we no longer live in a world where we have cheap land and cheap credit, and financing is, is, is so central a part of what's driving our development patterns that I think if we don't get our head around it, um, you know, we're not, we're, not, we're not really planning. One quick question and then one final comment. Um, Mr. McDonald, you cited a statistic that, um, or shall I wrote 94%, 94% of those who work in the central city don't live in the central city. 
Do you know what percentage of those who work in the central live within the Sacramento city limits? Don't. Okay. Again, that speaks to this question of, you know, more inward development versus more outward development. Just closing out on the subject of annexation, I thought I saw something in the staff report, I couldn't find it, that said something about plans for annexing disadvantaged communities. I read that to be code for the finger. Is there a, is, is, that, on, is that on tap or did I misunderstand what that point meant? That is something we're, we're gonna take another look at. We've been trying to annex that since I started 28 years ago. Uh, and I, I wanted to point out we haven't proposed since the 2030 general plan annexations of any new areas that weren't already in our sphere of influence. So uh, Greenbrier and Panhandle were already in our sphere. And uh, other than the, uh, the finger area, the Fruit Ridge finger, I don't believe we're going to change that in the next update. So I don't think hopefully annexations aren't, aren't uh, a big issue uh, for us. But I, th I think it is an issue when the county proposes, has proposals in uh, North Natomas or the Natomas area, North Precinct, Cordova Hills, uh, uh, the Sunrise area, Vineyard area, continued sprawl, not consistent with the blueprint. And it kind of competes with our uh, general plan. And if somebody can get a, a house cheaper in the suburbs versus something in a dense urban environment, they, you know, they're given a choice. And I don't think that choice should be made available. Those, those shouldn't be happening. And I think that they hurt our urban infill potential. And I hear what you're saying, and I'll, I'll tread carefully so as not to trip the wire with my friends on the Board of Supervisors, some of them who, A, get to make this decision, and the ones I call friends have very enlightened views on this question. But um, again, my, I, I'm, I'm directly focused on what impact we can have, and anything we do that drives that outward is, is against it, and just I support you 150% on the finger, and I, again, I think that's a finance issue, not a planning issue, but I don't really know. Um, my last question is, uh, so, Mr. Mendoza, you put up this great graph on the Climate Action Plan. So, you know, I sent you a note earlier today, thank you for your response, just trying to understand what it is, and I focused on that checklist that um, Mr. Philly made reference to, and I guess the thing that I don't get is, if the applicants have to do that checklist and, you know, it says, you know, bike facilities, pedestrian facilities, project of a certain size, things like, you know, renewable, you know, power sources, or I forgot what they were. Um, that's all mixed in with all these other things that we require. How do you measure the, how do you measure the impact? I saw that cool graph in your presentation and I just scratched my head and said, how do you, how do you get data that's isolated to the, that's sourced to the climate action plan to, to measure, I, I don't get the, where the data source comes and what that analysis is all about. We do a calculation at the beginning, what, what is our current uh, emissions inventory and then what would it be we project out based on, on our growth and all the identified mitigation measures from the climate action plan. Uh, so you know what's kind of self-mitigating if we're gonna have certain requirements in policy and code and then what's left over was kind of parsed out to the assumed remainder of development that would be subject to CEQA, and, and that kind of parsed it out that way. But it was a, an estimate at that point. Okay. What, what the remainder was. And we don't uh, recalculate that number every year. We don't do that annually. We do that on a five-year cycle. 
with the next general plan update that we would like a way to at least kind of benchmark it periodically to see if we're on track. And so that's something that we're going to ask to be added into the climate action plan. Okay. I mean, it, it's bad to get sucked into tunnel vision or siloed thinking, but I guess I didn't fully understand what is the climate action plan separate from all these other things we do, and maybe it doesn't really matter. But it sounds to me the bottom line is you're looking at the, you're looking at the data holistically and, and looking at your data points and comparing them with your projections, and whether it comes from this rule or that rule is less important than are we achieving a goal. Appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Commissioner LaFalso. Uh, see no further public comment, no commissioner comments or questions. I'll wrap this item up. I just want to say thank you to the staff um, and um, to Commissioner Coffin's point, the, just the cost. I read something recently that uh, pension liabilities and the sprawl, the cost of providing service are the two kind of costs that cities are kind of grappling right now across the country. So, um, yeah, really important. Um, and we have to really think about how we grow smarter. And really smart growth is really about the timing and sequence of growth. Um, so with that, we'll, we'll end uh, item number five. We'll go to any public comments, matters not on the agenda, any further member comments, seeing none. And just because TODs are a lot of fun, the journal plan's a lot of fun, tomorrow the USC Stanford game's a lot of fun, so we have to adjourn to prepare for that. Uh, thank you so much, everybody.